we had two main areas where he picked up most of the victims and one of them was pretty much the main drag that leads you into Homa, which is a Highway 182. It's also known as New Orleans Boulevard. And it's lined at the end of the street with several motels, low-budget motels that uh, are known for drug activity, prostitution, uh, transients coming in and out looking for work. Um, so he would pick them up there. And we also had a second, what we called a target area, that um, was in uh, a neighborhood called Mechanicville, which is primarily populated by uh, black residents, he did prefer uh, the black male, uh, the short, stocky, thin, young black male was, was his preference. But if there was nothing available, like he said, availability, he would look for something similar. And if they happened to be white, then they happened to be white. Chris, I don't think Chris would have let him got the ups on him. If he had to, had to do Chris either drugging some kind of way Chris went to sleep and put his trust in him and some kind of way he put he slipped the handcuffs on him you know? and um, I don't like to talk about it the way they found him you know we had to close the casket uh, when we buried him you know he 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 liked the street Chris Chris liked it to go Chris liked it to to be out in the streets at the same time Chris liked it to go home when he gets ready you know, his old lady didn't tell him that he didn't keep a job, and so he went out in the street and figured he could get it out in the streets, you know. Countless times when we were investigating this for several years, we'd have the victims' faces and their uh, biographical information and bills up on the wall, and we were trying to determine if this is the work of one man, how could this man overtake all these men? We would meet at um, the Lafouche Parish Detective Bureau handle different leads, discuss different things that we were doing. And we were just doing that for months and months and months. And the break came when um, one of the people on our task force, Bill Knoll, who was a probation and parole officer, he was basically in charge of gathering information on known sex offenders and things like that. And uh, he came to us with some information from one of his parolees. Ricky was under my supervision uh, back then for a drug problem, I believe it was. I'm not sure. But anyway, he was on parole at the time. His mom called me and told me that Ricky was having nightmares about being tied up. And she thought he was involved with the serial killer. Yeah, I knew uh, guy, Chris Neville. That's a big dude, man. That's a big old dude. I don't know how he... Killed him. Yeah. I was just walking down the street, man. Over there, dog pounding over there, just walking. I seen a vehicle pass me about two or three times, maybe. Maybe the third or fourth time it stopped. Show me a picture of a woman. I mean, I can make some money, you know, doing this, doing that. Fell for that, got in the truck, started going to buy it blue. Shit. After we get there, he tell me some kind of stuff that I had to get undressed, get tied up, you know, 
get wrapped in a towel laying on my stomach. Oh, no, son. <laughs> oh, no. None of that. So he tried to talk me into it. He told me, you can talk holding your head. I ain't getting tired of it. I think that's what it, what it did. Um, anyway, we got into an argument while we was in a, in the trailer, and he really didn't want to take me back. He really wanted me to get tied up. I don't know it ain't gonna happen. So I had to use uh, force a little bit to get him to bring me back. Open the door and bring me back in. After that, he bringing me back. Yeah, he kept on running his hand down the side of the door panel as if there was something down there, you know. Uh, I told him if he do that again, I'm going to hit him with this bottle and smash the accelerator. So he stopped doing it. By the time he got me back where I was, I just got out of the truck and left. I never said nothing else about it. Well, Ricky told me that they, he had, it was a standoff for maybe 25, 30, 40 minutes. But after a good time in that trailer, the guy finally agreed to bring Ricky back and he dropped him off near the point of where he had picked him up. To this person who's a street person who needs a ride, needs my help anyway, how would you like to have sex with a woman? you being heterosexual. And of course, if you look at the Ricky Wilde story, that's what happens. He picks up Ricky. He leads Ricky into believing that he's going to have sex with a white female. He even has a picture to show. Uh, this woman has a story to go behind it. Um, the woman uh, has been abused before, but really wants to have sex with uh, a guy like you, Ricky. Let me take you to her. Let's meet her. Um, progressively, let me buy you a beer, you know, um, and, and Dawn and I started going back and forth. Would, would, would everybody believe this? Would a guy on the street believe this story? And that's the remarkable part of the story. Is, it, is, it, is this the same MO that he's doing or something or a variation of to allow him to achieve all this? And obviously there's a lot of truth to that uh, because Ricky, you know, and this was getting him to admit that, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that he, he almost bought it. Yeah, yeah. I knew the guy that killing people, but it dawned on me then. Because I wasn't, actually, I wasn't thinking that clearly uh, on no account. <laughs> uh, and then when I thought about it, hmm, it's too late. And when I heard this guy, this guy got killed, who I had known a long time, I said, I decided. <sighs> That's when I decided I would uh, come forward and let somebody know what happened to me. Because I had already knew that it was him who picked me up. How I know that? I, it's, that, that feeling, that eerie feeling. Just, some things you just don't pass by. Just You can feel it inside out, no matter what it is. That, that's what it was for me. I just knew it. What it was, I just knew it. Mm. That was so true. 
Ricky Wallace say by the time he thought about it it was too late context of white supremacy that is a spectacular illustration for 13 years we asked who is more informed about racism white supremacy what it is and how it works that right there Ricky Wallace he's by the time I even thought about things too late mm. Don't you ever think like ever, 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 ever in your life think that the context of white supremacy, we do anything just to be doing it, trying to entertain folks, anything. Don't ever think we're just playing a song just to be playing a song. We didn't just have Rick James in the background for the last three months for no reason. Patti LaBelle is not playing for no reason. In fact, even the specific song. Ricky Wallace, if only you knew what it means to be white. Catherine Massey Book Club debut study session. Fred Rosen, suspected racist. He is deceased. White man. His book, The Bayou Strangler. I didn't even want to read this book. I'm not into serial killers. We've done uh, studies on Jeffrey Dahmer, had people who've written biographies on Jeffrey Dahmer. We've read in the book club the wisdom of psychopaths. Like, not even, I don't even, you know, who sit around and read about people getting killed and, and bunches of them and all the rest of it. The only reason we're reading this right now, a cow's listener reminded Gus T, hey, before Buffalo and Joey and the 22 caliber killings, one of the cow's signature subjects was New Orleans. Hurricane Katrina, the levee failure, and what, 17 years of white supremacy since. Lost about 100,000. Uh, black citizens of the New Orleans area approximately who did not return to the area post Katrina all of the work and I mean we have done from day one 13 years of study on New Orleans all the way back to 09 how did we miss that there was a white serial killer targeting black males raping and killing them in the middle of Katrina That's why we're reading this book. Spectacular omission by Gus T. Renegade. And right on time, we are literally hours away from Katrina 17, even though it was the levee failure and all of the white supremacy racism that caused all of the massive problems uh, subsequently with that event, not Hurricane Katrina, but at least that was the genesis. Anyway, you need to think about that. I said, Patty LaBelle is playing for a reason delectable negro is every page of this book is the same book we just read we just moved from new york state to southern louisiana exact same story the only thing more bodies killed more black males and it's way less material this these are the murders where you all say man i didn't know about this because they didn't report about it correct Gus T is not going to be able to tell you for this one that man I went to the library and got hundreds of eh, wrong I don't even think I'm going to be able to tell you that I got 20 
if only you knew what it means to be white. And I thought they said that was black male privilege, right? You get killed and everybody knows about it and everything. Hmm. Hmm. Fred Rosen, the Bayou Strangler. My man Ricky Wallace said his mother said he had problems going to sleep. Substance abuse problems. If a white man tried to tie me up, rape and kill me. Yeah, I might have all types of problems going to bed. Substance abuse. (laughs) Context of white supremacy. Audio segment one. Dreamscape presents The Bayou Strangler. Louisiana's Most Gruesome Serial Killer by Fred Rosen Narrated by Keith Foster Author's Note This story is based on primary, on-the-scene reporting in the bayous of Louisiana, the investigative transcript of the case, and extended interviews with the primary detectives. Some names have been changed in the interest of privacy but every single victim is as he was. Forward, 2017. Some stories take longer to come together than others. This is one of them. That it's about the serial killer who killed more victims than any other serial killer in the United States during the past two decades, well, you'd think that would have been enough to generate books, movies of the week, films, TV magazine broadcasts, and podcasts. But that didn't happen. The sexuality of the killer and his choice of victims got in the way. I've written four books about serial killers. This is the fifth. What I have discovered is that when the victims are prostitutes, society, including law enforcement, really doesn't care that much about them. But supposing the serial killer is gay and he targets gay men, most of whom are sex workers. That is rare. Media outlets stayed away from the specifics of this story, of which there are many. One would hope that the sexuality of the bad guy and the victims wouldn't make any difference. But it does when it comes to press coverage, which always reflects public perceptions. If the serial killings also happen in Louisiana, the state with the highest per capita murder rate, Who would care? What's one more victim in Louisiana to the media, let alone 23? I don't look at Louisiana as the murder capital of the United States. It's the place where, as a teenager, I had turtle soup and shrimp creole agnew, named after the corrupt vice president who served President Richard Nixon at Brennan's, one of New Orleans's best restaurants and where I once made the mistake of ordering a drink called a hurricane in the French Quarter. It put me on the floor. During that and subsequent trips, I discovered that no other state has Louisiana's unique mix in its gumbo and etouffee. Louisiana has very heavy French, African, Spanish, Native American, and French-Canadian influences, helping to account for its Cajun character. The state has a one-of-a-kind parish system with really exotic names instead of counties. Yet, despite all of these unique cultural influences, there is a supposition in the northern and western parts of the United States that southern cops are prejudiced, 
In the late 1960s, this stereotype was best exemplified by Rod Steiger's Oscar-winning portrayal of Sheriff Bill Gillespie in In the Heat of the Night. During the 1970s, Clifton James, as the stocky, loud, and blustering Sheriff J.W. Pepper, faced off opposite Sir Roger Moore's first and second turns as 007 in Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. James Best, one of television's finest character actors, took over the stereotype's mantle as Sheriff Roscoe Coltrane in The Dukes of Hazard, which ran from 1979 to 1985. On the contrary, nothing could be further from the truth. The detectives on the case of the century's worst serial killer were anything but ignorant, racist idiots. Central casting would have a problem with this one. The Southern detectives on this case have advanced college degrees allied with street smarts and a healthy lack of prejudice toward gay men. There were, in particular, two detectives, a man and woman, who were willing to spend years of their lives hunting the bad guy, literally hunting the serial killer through two millennia, in order to bring justice and humanity to each and every one of his twenty-three victims. That is a story that had gotten lost until now. Never before have I seen such dedication to justice. Dennis Thornton and Don Bergeron truly speak for the dead. Prologue Walt Disney World, Orlando, Florida, 2006 Why do serial killers always seem to have a middle name or initial? Detective Don Bergeron knew the answer to that one. It's because the arrest warrant, a legal document that a judge signs off on, always contains the killer's full legal name, including a middle name and or middle initial, if there is one. But before you can get a warrant, you need a suspect, or suspects. His big black feet clomping, Mickey Mouse strode by on his way to a character breakfast which cost a little bit more than regular admission. Bergeron was more than happy to give her daughter, Justine, a special breakfast on their vacation at Disney World. Bergeron was wearing what she usually wore away from the job, jeans, a t-shirt, and black and brown Doc Martens. At work, she dressed more formally, in a pantsuit and blouse. Despite the Doc Martens, business had found her. Bergeron's business was homicide. She had borrowed the Disney computer to check in on what was happening with her most pressing case. She opened an email from her task force partner, Lieutenant Dennis Thornton of Jefferson Parish, 58 miles from Terrebonne Parish, where Bergeron worked. Mickey Mouse would have blushed if he could have seen the arrest warrants for murder she was downloading from the email attachments that Thornton had sent to her. Thornton has been on this case longer than anybody, she thought. She began signing the forms that would, at last, bring the two-millennia-spanning manhunt to a close. Bergeron regularly worked out of the Major Crimes and Juvenile Division of the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office, in the southern part of Louisiana on the Gulf of Mexico. Tall, curvy, and southern Louisiana beautiful, with tawny skin and high cheekbones, her horn-rimmed glasses could not disguise the slightly dark and exotic look of Bergeron's French relatives. 
You could see it in her eyes. Her T-shirt swelled over large, voluminous breasts with a tattoo on the left breast that was only visible if she wore something extremely low-cut, which she seldom did. She had learned that it was the confidence built up in a suspect that made them talk. Big breasts were too distracting. At work, the jacket helped. Bergeron was angry. She had wanted to cancel the vacation. She hadn't seen much point in going if they were close to finally arresting the serial killer. But she felt she owed it to her daughter. It had been a long haul. She and Thornton had been working 22-hour days. Louisiana is a poor state. The task force didn't even have enough money for their overtime. Instead, they'd surveilled the killer on their own time. They even let him know they were on his trail. With that much attention on him, he no longer had carte blanche to kill. A real Disney World vacation would be good, she'd thought, no matter the results of the pending Sutterfield DNA tests. So she had gone, with assurance that nothing would happen until she returned. Wrong. But it was a good wrong. They had just gotten two mitochondrial DNA hits from victim Oliver LeBanks. The semen in his rectum had been genetically linked to their prime suspect. Yet still they hesitated to pick up their killer. Usually taken from a suspect's hair, mitochondrial DNA can only narrow the suspect down genetically to a given family. The results are therefore impeachable in court by a good defense attorney. What was needed for an airtight conviction at trial was a match of nuclear DNA. Nuclear DNA includes much more of the individual's genome, or genetic makeup, a direct match. Nonetheless, the results convinced the department to begin round-the-clock surveillance on the suspect. The hope for a Sutterfield match was a nuclear DNA hit. It's mitochondrial, Thornton told Bergeron over the phone not hiding the disappointment in his voice. Well, what are we going to do? Bergeron asked the senior detective. Thornton had spent eight years hunting the suspected killer when they finally found him in Bayou Blue. They discussed it for a while. If they arrested the guy now, they had a strong case to bring to trial, but not by any means a guaranteed conviction. But not to bring him into custody risked further homicides. We gotta pick him up, Thornton finally said. Let's roll the dice. Bergeron's daughter, Justine, had been looking forward to the vacation and was having a wonderful time. Like so many other times, though, work interfered. They had bought seven-day passes. To add insult to injury, Disney doesn't give refunds. But maybe in this case... Walt Disney had produced the first-ever television miniseries about serial killers. In Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, 1956, a sequel to the Davy Crockett miniseries, Davy Crockett, Fess Parker, and his pal Georgie Russell, Buddy Ebsen, raced riverboat king Mike Fink, Jeff York, down the Ohio River to New Orleans. Then, in a twist based upon legend, Davy Crockett and Georgie Russell went up against Big Harp and Little Harp, America's first known serial killers. It would be nice to know if Walt Disney would have made an exception, 
and given a refund to the detective about to arrest the new millennium's most prolific serial killer. It was a little easier for Bergeron and her daughter to get back home to Louisiana than it had been for Davy and Georgie to get back to Tennessee, sailing up the Mississippi. Instead, Bergeron and her child left Frontierland and flew back to New Orleans, and from there drove up to Homa. Bergeron dropped off Justine with a friend, and then drove her white Dodge Charger over to the big stone slab of a building in the middle of town that served as headquarters for the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office. Walking up the steps, she thought about the victims. She'd thought about them a lot over the years the serial killer had been active. Twenty-three bodies strewn like so much detritus across southern Louisiana. A lot of things needed to be explained. Until they got the killer into the interview room, it was hard to say what they would get from him. Boy, she and Thornton really wanted to get this guy. Part 1. The Cloak of Night Chapter 1. The Quarters Orleans Parish, October 3, 1998 it all started eight years earlier, on the kind of day when you needed to take a shower to get dry. That's how hot and humid it was. The unusually high temperature in the low 80s and the 80% humidity made it very uncomfortable. Ronald J. Dominique's damp T-shirt clung to his back. He did not rate a second glance from any of the hustlers, tourists, pickpockets, addicts, and strippers crowded into the streets of the French Quarter. Short and stocky, five feet five inches tall and 160 pounds, he had a straggly black mustache and an unkempt black goatee on the lower part of his thin lips. Puffy cheeks and deep-set green eyes rounded out the picture of just another anonymous, slightly overweight, balding, 36-year-old American strolling through the French Quarter at twilight. Dominique thought of the neighborhood as the Quarters. To get out of the house, he had started going to the quarters. It was a good place. The trumpet notes of New Orleans jazz drifted out of the clubs onto Bourbon Street. He liked the music, though it did nothing to relax him. He went to a few of the raunchier clubs and tried a few draft beers. They didn't take the edge off either. Sex. He needed sex. There was something else that he couldn't easily define. Something he felt that was more basic and that, even had he tried, he couldn't give words to. It just was time to troll. That's why he had parked his car, outside the quarters in a dark spot, and gotten it ready. Inside his car he had placed what he needed to satisfy his insatiable craving. I know what I want. I need a guy to play around with, Dominique thought. He knew that he wasn't an attractive man. Even when he did his Patti LaBelle impersonation, all dressed up as the singer, nobody liked him. Making friends had never been easy. He'd also never had a long-term relationship with another man. It wasn't for lack of trying, but just as when he had been growing up, Dominique was laughed at, called a slob, a fag, a loser. This wasn't San Francisco. Louisiana is a lot more conservative and like many places in the United States, had not been so accepting of a gay man trying to come to grips with his sexuality. 
Dominique may have looked roly-poly, but that belied his strong upper body. Trolling, or fishing, requires bait that attracts the fish to the hook. It's a simple, business-like proposition. He had learned early on that it was easy in southern Louisiana to buy sex. Lots of people did. Oliver LeBanks knew it, too. And LeBanks also needed something. Money. The 27-year-old would sometimes pickpocket a tourist, maybe sell some drugs, or just hustle. No strong-arm stuff, just a little bit here and there to make ends meet. Like Dominique, he had been strolling through the French Quarter enjoying himself, his brother and a couple gay friends by his side. I don't get it, said his brother. What you with these guys for? They're these old guys that like young guys like us. This is a way to make extra money, LeBanks explained reasonably. He was a businessman about to make a proposition. LeBanks, his brother, and his friends later went to 740 Burgundy, the location of Rawhide, a local gay bar popular with hustlers. With its constant flow of tourists, Rawhide was a great place to hustle sex, the kind of gay bar most gay bars fantasize about being. It was known as a Leather and Levi's place, where older guys cruised younger guys. Time to get to work. Throwing the door open, the music and boisterous laughter hit LeBanks like a hurricane. A jukebox in the back was blaring out some Patti LaBelle song. LeBanks' close-set dark eyes adjusted to the dim, smoky interior. He saw a pool table, with guys using their cues to bang the balls into the holes. On the right was the long teak and mahogany bar that curved around the room. The walls were decorated with multicolored license plates from all over the United States. Three sets of two supporting wooden pillars, six in all, were staggered down the bar, seeming to hold the whole place up. In practice, they divided the bar into cozy warrens of six-man sections, where intimate conversation and other mature things were possible. It was already crowded to overflowing, with shirtless men sitting before cold bottles of beer. Many were middle-aged, with paunches hanging down over their belts to their Bermuda shorts. There were a few men dressed in leather, brandishing whips with the idea of using them in ways Indiana Jones hadn't even thought of. However, for LeBanks, the place was the Temple of Doom. The older leather boys mingled with younger guys in Levi's, Boots, and Stetsons. LeBanks hung back a little, eyeing the customers at the bar, sizing them up, the upside-down U-shaped aluminum handrails reflected the occasional flash of a tourist snapping a picture. LeBanks's friends took their shirts off to join in. He noticed a guy at the bar who wanted to blend in, but could not. Dominique wasn't about to expose himself in public, not with his portly frame. Too embarrassing. He'd had enough of that. He was sick and tired of his family ridiculing him for being gay. Their taunts made him ashamed at first, and then angry. He kept his shapeless T-shirt on, figuring the money in his pocket would do the talking when the time was right. He kept busy drinking a cold bottle of Purple Haze, an American-style wheat beer with a slight raspberry taste that was lost on Dominique that night. 
Dominique was too busy thinking about other things, like the slim black guy who sat down in the empty stool next to his, ordered a beer, and started to talk to him. After a few minutes of chit-chat, the hustler got down to business. You like to have a good time? LeBanks asked, drinking his beer casually. I like to fool around, Dominique replied. His southern Louisiana accent betrayed him to LeBanks as a native, probably from up in the Homa area. That part of Terrebonne Parish was crisscrossed with bayous, a rural place centered around a small town. Locals referred to the town as Up, though in fact it was 55 miles southwest of New Orleans. But that made no difference. Local was all right with LeBanks. Money was money. Sure, LeBanks said. I ain't got no money for no motel or nothing, Dominique explained. I don't have none either, answered LeBanks. Dominique had a ready solution. Instant intimacy that had worked for many couples since Henry Ford had invented the Model T automobile in 1908. Come on, we'll go to my vehicle. It's parked nearby. You need money? Dominique asked. LeBanks knew what the guy wanted. He'd done it before. There was only one more thing that needed to be said. How much you got? About twenty or thirty dollars? Dominique responded. The price was fine with LeBanks. That was the rate for a blowjob. Sounded good. It was a business transaction, plain and simple. Step out to do it, and then come back to make some more money with some other guys. Names weren't needed. Just cash. Why don't we go to my car? It's parked right near here, said Dominique, slipping off the bar stool. LeBanks eyed him again. He saw nothing out of the ordinary. Green eyes and round, placid face. Dressed in jeans and a t-shirt, Dominique looked like any other guy wanting to get his rocks off on a handsome young hustler like LeBanks. Dominique led the way out. Outside, they turned down St. Anne Street and continued walking. If LeBanks had been paying attention, the first tip-off would have been that the guy's car wasn't as close as he'd said it was. They had to keep walking through the pools of light that distinguished the quarter, past the old balconied buildings that were young in Corsair Jean Lafitte's time. Lafitte had been known as the Pirate Patriot. Without Lafitte and his pirates fighting alongside him, General Andrew Jackson, Old Hickory, would have lost the Battle of New Orleans, where he defeated the English in 1815. Dominique and LeBanks passed Lafitte's old blacksmith shop on Bourbon Street, where he and his brother had first started their criminal enterprises. The men walked out of the quarter to quiet, dark side streets, where shadowy hulks were parked by the curb. I'm over here, Dominique gestured, where that new shopping thing by the Jack's Brewery is. It was late, and the parking lot next to the Jack's Brewery was mostly empty. Dominique opened up the back door of a ten-year-old tan Chevy Malibu station wagon with a luggage rack on top. Dominique got in, and LeBanks piled in on top of him. He was all ready to go, really wanting some action. Dominique watched as LeBanks pulled off his T-shirt, exposing a muscular torso. Dominique stripped down quickly, pulling his pants and what he thought of as his drawers all the way down. 
Not wasting any time, LeBanks went down on him. LeBanks sucked Dominique's penis, until Dominique twisted LeBanks around so that they sucked each other simultaneously. Now lay on your stomach, Dominique instructed. He had not negotiated for that. Fucking would be more. But before LeBanks could say anything else, Dominique got on top of him, his weight crushing him down on the seat. I was hurt before. I was split, said Dominique. The comment had no context to LeBanks, because he wasn't a mind reader. He didn't know that Dominique had been raped, and how determined he was to never have that happen again. With LeBanks struggling to get out from under the big man's weight, Dominique pushed his penis into the man's rectum. LeBanks protested he was being hurt, but Dominique was relentless. He pushed harder and harder and harder, until finally he ejaculated. Now get on top of me and rub your thing on me, Dominique ordered. LeBanks got on top of Dominique and began rubbing his penis against the guy's flabby ass. Dominique thought he felt some penetration, and that was it. You was just supposed to rub it. He'd had enough, and he'd been forced to put up with too much to stop there. The ridicule, the stone glances from his family. And now, just thinking someone was about to violate him again made him want, finally, to do something about it. It was an intoxicating combination of fear and retribution, and he had prepared for such an eventuality. Reaching down to the floorboards, he felt the cold metal of the tire iron in his strong hand. He brought it up quickly and slammed it into the side of Oliver LeBanks's head. He brought up the iron and hit him again. As the smaller man's brain began leaking out blood inside his cranium, the struggle seeped out of him. His limbs stopped pushing, then twitched, finally going slack. Physicians call it a concussion. Unless LeBanks were operated on immediately, the twin concussions he had sustained when the tire iron impacted his head would soon kill him. Dominique showed no mercy. He got on top of LeBanks and began to choke him. Already unconscious from the blows, LeBanks started twitching again and then Dominique heard the death rattle, the last gasp of the life that he had just violated. He took off his belt, wrapped it around the now unmoving figure. Putting his weight on top of him again, Dominique pulled the belt tight, so it bit into LeBanks's skin. After a while, Dominique wasn't sure how long it was. He realized the guy was, once and for all, not breathing anymore. He threw open the back door and jumped out of the station wagon into the deserted street. Dominique had killed before. He knew what he had to do. He got into the driver's seat, fished his keys out of his pocket, plunged the key into the ignition, and started up the car. Chapter 2 Outside the Box Dominique began driving down dark streets, not really knowing where he was, looking for the right place to dump the body. He'd know when he saw it. He wound up driving into Kenner, the oldest city in Jefferson Parish, established in 1855. Back then, the place was known by its French name, Can Brulee. 
burnt cane fields. It was a landmark on the banks of the Mississippi River. The family of its founder, William Kenner, owned many of the area's larger plantations and farms. Everything changed in 1915, when a commuter rail line was established from Kenner to New Orleans, bringing in manufacturing. That, in turn, brought in new roads and the airports. A full-fledged suburb, Kenner was connected to the Big Easy by Interstate 10, the major east-west interstate in the southern United States. Interstate 10 goes all the way from Jacksonville, Florida, on the Atlantic Ocean, across the southwestern United States, terminating at Santa Monica on the Pacific Ocean in California. A few miles north of the busy New Orleans International Airport, Dominique turned his tan Malibu wagon south. He took a left down Airport Road. As he circled the airport looking for a location that he would know instinctively was right, the overhead jets had a bird's-eye view of his travels. Too many people, too many cars. The place was just too active. What had he been thinking? No place to do it that wouldn't be easily found. But that was part of the kick for Dominique. It couldn't be too easy. He wanted the body to be found. Had he not, he could have easily just gone over a bridge and dumped it into some dark waters. Or he could have driven to a nearby bayou and let the alligators take care of things, neatly and tastily, without leaving a trace for a forensic specialist to work with. It just wouldn't scratch that itch inside him if he did that. What fun would it be? What pleasure it would give him when the body was found. The body had to be found. He was sick and tired of people not giving him credit for things. Now he'd show them. He'd killed again, and the body would be proof. Proof. He took a left onto Airline Drive also known as Federal Highway 61. Heading east, back toward New Orleans, he passed the Hilton and Lexington hotels again. Their entrances lit up like it was Christmas. Dominique was one of those people who loved Christmas all year round. He kept Christmas decorations up full-time in his trailer. But this wasn't the holiday season. Those lights meant people were around. People who might see him and what he was doing what he had done. Again, too busy. Too many people driving in and out. No, that wouldn't do. And he kept going. He passed food management and construction offices. Airline Drive is host to a variety of businesses that cater to the airline traveler going through New Orleans. After a few miles, Airline Drive passed into the town of Metairie. Dominique saw Providence Memorial Park Cemetery on his right, where Mahalia Jackson, the celebrated gospel singer, had been laid to rest. But he was hardly into gospel. Leaving Mahalia and the cemetery behind him, he continued east toward New Orleans, still on Airline Drive, passing the fast food and chain restaurants, gas stations, and strip malls that dotted the highway. Passing Little Farms Avenue, he approached Dickory Avenue. Just past the light at the intersection of Dickory Avenue and the end of the Earhart Expressway was a speed trap. Waiting for speeders at the bottom of the elevated highway was Louisiana State Trooper 
Cal Calhoun. His job was to catch and ticket speeders, who would not see his car hidden in a parking lot at the bottom of the exit ramp. Obeying the speed limit, as he always did, Dominique drove right past the cop. Dickory Avenue rose as it got to the 6,000 block of Stable Drive, before hitting the railroad tracks. Below Stable was a feeder road into Zephyr Field, a quarter of a mile east, where the AAA New Orleans Zephyrs minor league team played its home games. There was nothing special about the overpass, except that it was conveniently there, secluded but accessible to passers-by, perfect for dumping a body. The tan Malibu wagon tooled down Stable Drive, deserted at this hour. Dominique pulled the wagon to the side of the road, hopped out, went around to the passenger side door, and threw it open. Pulling LeBanks's corpse by the belt still wrapped around its neck, he struggled until he had it fully out under the overpass. Then he let it go. The body plunked down on the sand, face down. Cutting back quickly to the station wagon, Dominique closed the rear passenger side door, which made a hollow sound in the empty darkness. Getting back behind the wheel, he turned the ignition on and put the car into drive. A moment later, Ronald J. Dominique was well away, driving the few blocks north to Airline Drive. This time, he didn't circle the airport, but kept going. Ten miles down the road, he saw the interstate looming overhead. Interstate 310 is a freeway linking U.S. 90 and southern Louisiana to Interstate 10 and metropolitan New Orleans. He turned right up the ramp, then took a left and headed southwest. In seven miles, the road climbed higher and passed over the Mississippi River, providing Dominique with a great view of the Big Muddy flowing below him. On the other side, the road passed over West Bank Bridge Park and curved south. In front of him were two signs. The one for the right lane said 90 West Homa, while the one for the left said 90 East Booty New Orleans. Dominique followed the sign to Booty at the southern end of the roadway. He turned north on the old Spanish trail, pulling off at the trailer park where he lived. Trailers were everywhere. Some were set on wooden foundations, some on concrete. Some had gardens in front, and some were really modular homes. The one thing they had in common? Anonymity. The next day, a passerby saw the body below the freeway ramp and called the police. Because the corpse had been dumped in Jefferson Parish, the lead homicide investigator from the sheriff's office was summoned to the scene. If it should turn out that the victim was killed in, say, Terrebonne Parish, the latter would then assume venue. But for now, Jefferson was up at bat. This guy is sloppy, thought Dennis Thornton. Otherwise, how come we find a fresh body? Dressed like a banker in charcoal gray suit, blue tie, and wing-tipped shoes, Detective Lieutenant Dennis Thornton bent over and examined the partially clothed body of the man he would eventually identify as Oliver LeBanks. Murder was a much more frequent occurrence in Louisiana than in other places, and therefore not unusual. Louisiana, and in particular the New Orleans metropolitan area, has the highest per capita homicide rate in the country, 
sorting through the similarities and differences between so many homicides can be a daunting task. Linkage. It was all about linkage in serial killer cases. Do that, and you'd save lives. Link homicides to the same perpetrator and concentrate your resources there. It was an inviolable clock, taking away the life seconds of the next victims. Thornton looked up at the jets flying overhead. The airport was nearby. Did the killer live near the airport, he wondered. Yes, he did. But what Thornton didn't know was that the killer was closer than anyone realized. And LeBanks had not been his first victim. The first had been David Mitchell, a 19-year-old African-American, who was last seen on July 13, 1997, in St. Charles Parish. That's right up Interstate 310, not far from where Dominique was living in Booty. Mitchell's fully clothed body was discovered the day after his disappearance on Louisiana Highway 3160, off Highway 18, in an industrial area of the parish. He had been anally raped before being drowned. Dominique next struck, exactly five months later to the day, again close to home. Gary Pierre, a 20-year-old African-American, was found dead on December 14 in St. Charles Parish. The coroner ruled that Pierre had been murdered by asphyxiation due to neck compression. He, too, had been raped. Serial killers can change patterns. Sometimes they have a cooling-off period between crimes. Dominique seemed to be one of those. Consistent to his pattern, at least for the moment, Dominique once again took a vacation from killing, this time for seven months. Then Larry Ranson showed up. Like Mitchell and Pierre, he was African-American and had last been seen in St. Charles. Ranson was 38 years old. Dominique was changing his victim of choice, showing age wasn't a factor. Serial killers usually zero in on a type and remain constant. Ranson's fully clothed body was discovered the day after he disappeared, on July 31, off Louisiana 316, in an industrial area of the parish. The coroner later said Ranson's manner of death was asphyxiation due to neck compression. Ranson would have been conscious the whole time he was being choked until, mercifully, he blacked out because his brain wasn't getting air and drifted into death. Because the bodies had been dumped close to one another, off the same road, the police in St. Charles suspected one killer. But the culprit had left nothing behind for the cops to work with. No fibers, no prints, no hair. The lack of DNA plus the anal bruising of the victims, made the cops figure he was using a condom. They sorted through the usual list of parolees with charges of sexual abuse of one sort or another in their files, but came up with nothing. What Southern Louisiana was unknowingly facing was a serial killer, and a successful one. Once a serial killing has been confirmed in a locality, the FBI is contacted and they make a profile of the killer. The profiles are generally cookie-cutter. The serial killer is white, poor, and doesn't have much of an education. While that profile would certainly fit Dominique, 
it also fit a couple million other guys in Louisiana and would be of no practical use. Solving a serial killing means thinking outside the box. Once in a while, a detective will get assigned to investigate, and no matter where the trail leads, no matter how long it takes, the detective decides to dedicate part of his life to tracking down a murderer who had the audacity to kill in his parish. Dominique didn't know it, but he had made an enemy of Dennis Thornton. Evidence markers were set up near tire imprints in the soft sand where LeBanks's body had been dumped. There was no evidence of a murder weapon. Examining the body, Thornton saw that the victim had been bludgeoned on one side of the head. The killer had left the pants of the victim down below his knees. His shirt was off. Thornton wore surgical gloves to prevent contamination. Not that he was afraid the dead man could contaminate him. It was the other way around. The idea was that the detective bring nothing to the scene, including his own fingerprints, that could contaminate the evidence. Thornton picked up the wrists and noted the ligature or binding marks. It looked like the guy's wrists had been tied together. Thornton was going to be very interested in what the coroner had to say about them. As the morgue attendants moved in with the bags, tarps, and collapsible table that formed the tools of their trade, Thornton stepped back to allow them to do their job. You can never be sure how wrists are tied together until the coroner weighs in. And details, like the pants around the victim's ankles, could turn out to be the killer's signature behavior. Chapter 3 The Detective St. Charles, Jefferson, and Orleans Parishes December 15-30, 1998 The next day, like nothing special had happened, Ronald J. Dominique reported for work at the St. Charles Parish Maintenance Department. Dominique had already killed three times before. Picking up his shovel to begin his day's work, he was unaware that in neighboring Jefferson Parish, the coroner was picking up his scalpel. Oliver LeBanks's naked body was laid out on the examining table in the morgue, all set for the Y incision that would expose his organs to the pathologist's blade. Dr. Harry Landers was ready to start cutting when Dennis Thornton stopped him. Detectives regularly attend autopsies to assist the coroner and to gather evidence. Thornton had noticed something. Look at the hairs, said Thornton. Oliver has Caucasian hairs on his body. Thornton was well-suited to the job. A streetwise, intelligent, well-educated homicide investigator who knew his trade. He had a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice from Loyola University, which he followed up with graduate work at Indiana State University, earning a Master of Arts in Criminology. And he treated everyone the same. Black, white, made no difference. All were people who deserved his best. Thornton produced an evidence envelope. Using gloved hands and sterile tweezers, Landers began picking up the hairs and dropping them into the envelope in the detective's hand. It took a few minutes, because there were a lot of them. It was very clear when held up to the light that they were indeed Caucasian. 
When Landers was finished, Thornton sealed and marked the envelope. The idea now was to maintain the chain of custody. The chain of custody is a record of individuals who have physical possession of the evidence. Maintaining it is vital. If evidence is contaminated by other DNA, from the people handling it, for example, it's the first thing a good defense attorney will attack in court to get their client off. If police develop the prime suspect, they could try to match his DNA to those hairs. Thornton put the sealed evidence in his briefcase for safekeeping. When he got to the station, he'd log it in as evidence. Then it would be sent out to a private lab for testing. The coroner picked up his scalpel again and this time went to work. The autopsy took less than an hour. When it was over, Landers had some answers for Dennis Thornton. The banks had been bludgeoned either before or after being bound, the ligature marks on the wrist, raped, deep anal bruising, but no semen, meaning the killer had used a condom, and strangled to death. The coroner found hemorrhaging at the key points where the killer put his hands around Oliver LeBanks's neck. LeBanks, who had a record of low-level crimes, was easily identified by his fingerprints. With the help of the victim's family and friends, Thornton backtracked his movements on the day of his death. LeBanks's girlfriend, Judy Jason, who was really shaken up, and his brother, Michael LeBanks, were interviewed and given the details of his last night. According to Judy and Michael, there was nothing out of the ordinary about LeBanks's movement that day prior to entering the quarter, when he separated from his brother and went with his two gay friends into the raw hole, as the cops called rawhide. Thornton drove his unmarked Chrysler into the quarter and parked on Burgundy Street. Walking past a few storefronts, he came to Rawhide. Back in the day, Rawhide was a 1960s American Western television series that made Clint Eastwood a star. Now it was the gay bar from which Oliver LeBanks disappeared, until he turned up dead. Unlike many police officers and prosecutors, who tended to dehumanize anyone engaging in prostitution, Thornton was a real pro. He refrained from judging the victim on the basis of his sexual orientation. Who cares whether the victim was gay? Oliver was how Thornton thought of him. He didn't care whether Oliver was hustling gay sex or not. He was a human being who got in way over his head and was murdered. The detective saw that it was business as usual at Rawhide. Leather, Bermuda shorts, beer, stroking, guys coming and going. Thornton stood out in his neat suit and tie. He moved into the bar between bare-chested bikers and questioned the bartenders, showing them a mugshot of LeBanks. No one remembered him. Working Burgundy Street outside, Thornton tried a few merchants, addicts, and prostitutes. No one had seen LeBanks on the street. Getting back into his car, Thornton found it remarkable that no one saw his body being dumped either, as though his killer had blended into thin air. Thin air, my ass. Dennis Thornton knew that whoever this guy was, he hadn't bothered to cover his trail. He could have secreted the body, at least for a few more days until someone discovered it by chance. Yet, he didn't do that. He had dumped LeBanks in a less populated area, 
but one that did see car traffic. The killer had seen the freeway, and it looked convenient. He may even, for some reason of his own, have wanted the body discovered. Thornton knew the homicide statistics for the state, which consistently ranked in the top five in the nation for females murdered in single incidents, usually by men they knew. The killer he was tracking didn't fit into the latter category. The only thing he could conclude, so far, was that LeBanks's killer had acted alone. There was no evidence to show otherwise. It looked like an ordinary hookup, probably a business deal, sex for money, which might make the suspect gay. Fifteen days after Oliver LeBanks was murdered, Joseph Brown turned up dead. His partially clothed body found on the western end of Veterans Memorial Boulevard in Kenner. That gave venue to the detectives of St. Charles Parish, who soon discovered that Brown, an African-American, was all of sixteen years old. As for the method of death, the coroner concluded death by asphyxiation due to strangulation. The police had no other clues or leads to the killer. One month later, Bruce Williams became the next victim discovered. This time the body was fully clothed, dumped in an industrial area of Jefferson Parish. Again, Dennis Thornton got the call. The details were the same as with LeBanks. He had been strangled and raped. Male-on-male -male rape was not a crime that police officers encountered often. Thornton saw the immediate similarities, and his mind made the necessary linkage. Once again, he backtracked the victim's movements, and, this time, he discovered that Williams, an 18-year-old African-American, had been a hustler, much like LeBanks. Only he lived in New Orleans. He had walked over to the French Quarter the night of November 27 and disappeared. The parish reached out to the FBI for help. It wasn't Thornton's decision alone, of course. There were higher-ups who were captains, commanders, majors, whatever, who carried a lot more pull. But when a decision is finally reached internally that a serial killer is their quarry, calling in the FBI is firm policy across the country. The FBI had conducted a serial killer project in the 1970s. Their idea was to try to identify and analyze the most common characteristics of serial murderers, which could then be used to capture them. In our book, Tracker, Hunting Down Serial Killers, my co-author, Dr. Maurice Godwin, the renowned geographic profiler, writes, With good intentions, the FBI proceeded, but unfortunately without scientific evaluation. FBI agents conducted interviews with 36 incarcerated men, only 25 of whom were serial killers. The lack of a real scientific basis for the study didn't stop the Bureau from developing what it termed the profiles of the organized and disorganized serial killer. It became the most widely used profiling model in the world. But because it was based on a specious study, the results came into question among criminologists during the 1980s. Most local police departments that used the FBI's profiling services soon found they all got the same white, male, mid-30s, high school dropout, difficulty with social skills, 
cookie-cutter profile. It was no different for Jefferson Parish. But the FBI narrowed the hunt down further for them. Based upon the string of dump sites, they had a possible location for the suspect. This guy lives near the airport, FBI profiler Tom Colby told Thornton. Well, that narrowed it down to another million guys, thought Thornton. But it did seem accurate. The guy had dumped bodies on both sides of the airport. Why in these places? Besides being sloppy, or maybe because of it, could he have wanted the bodies to be seen? As for where he lived, it did seem logical to Thornton that it would be nearby. But where? Cookie cutter or not, this time the FBI got it right. They didn't know it, but their profile fit Ronald J. Dominique exactly. Dominique lived in Booty, just thirteen and a half miles from New Orleans International Airport. Of course, it also fit millions of other guys in Louisiana, and probably more than a few in the airport vicinity. But only one of them was a serial killer who decided, once again, to go trolling in the quarters at night. Ronald J. Dominique was on the prowl for another male hustler who needed money. And he soon found him. His name was Manuel Reed. A native of the Big Easy, Reed was African-American, 21 years old, with a slim, muscular build that was evident when his partially clothed body was discovered inside a business dumpster in Kenner on May 30, 1999. Death by asphyxia due to strangulation, ruled the coroner. And like all the rest, Reed had been raped before he died. While some serial killers do their killing across state lines, many, like Dominique, murder close to home. That proximity gives them a comfort zone, knowing that once the job is done, they can get away safely and easily and be home quickly. It was Angel Mejia, then, who changed the serial killer's paradigm. Angel Mejia was a homeless, 21-year-old African-American. With no permanent address, he worked the streets for his existence. Last seen alive on the afternoon of June 30, 1999, he was found that night in front of a business dumpster in an industrial area of Kenner. In front of the dumpster. As Thornton viewed the body, he remembered what he had thought about the killer. He was sloppy, and he was proving it again and again. Mejia was partially clothed and had been raped. Death by asphyxia due to strangulation, the coroner wrote in his report. It was getting to be a rather repetitive, not to mention frustrating, line. No matter what testing they did, they still could not come up with anything on the killer's prints, DNA, or even his car's tire impressions. They had those hairs, but no database to check them with, and, more importantly, no suspect to check them against. And even if you identified a suspect, you needed a search warrant to get his DNA, unless he consented. Then, to make matters worse, the media got involved. The Advocate broke the story on June 23, 1999, with the sensationalistic headline, Shoeless Body Could Be Work of Serial Killer. A serial killer may be responsible for the deaths of three young men whose shoeless bodies were dumped in isolated areas around New Orleans International Airport 
over the past eight months, the article said. It was also mentioned that Angel Mejia and Joseph Brown knew each other and had a history of dealing drugs. Making a public statement that a serial killer is working in a specific locality is a double-edged sword that requires careful handling. On one hand, it allows people to be aware of what's happening and take measures to protect themselves. On the other hand, it lets the bad guy know the cops are on to him, thus giving him a chance to cover his tracks and run. And so that's how the urban myth of the shoeless serial killer was born. It has alliteration going for it. Local television stations went with it, claiming that all the serial killer's bodies had been missing their shoes. On the internet, amateur sleuths who had never even heard of Mycroft Holmes claimed, without substantiation, that removing the shoes was part of this serial killer's modus operandi, M.O., his signature behavior, the one thing he did that made him unique. Mycroft Holmes's little brother, Sherlock, might have disagreed. Thornton, too, knew that wasn't accurate. It just made good copy. In the cases where the shoes were missing, they were found nearby. In others, the victims were wearing shoes when the police found them. More revealing was who the victims were. Street people. They led transient lives. Here today, gone tomorrow. They were people that would never be missed, like Mitchell Johnson. Nobody will be missed. Nobody will be missed. Context of White Supremacy Catherine Massey Book Club at the Cows We will be done promptly with this here text. It is not very long, not a whole lot of material, so we won't have to spend a whole lot of time uh, with the book. Uh, if you have commentary, thoughts to share, the number... 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 720-716-7300 the code 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. If only you knew what it means to be white. Email address until justice at gmail dot com. Until justice at gmail. Dot com. Incidentally, she said uh, 
what did she say? Patty LaBelle, she said, uh, rehearsed my lines a thousand times. Still, it didn't come out right. Say, Ronald Dominic did not have that problem. Charm, black males. I'm a swell guy. Let's fool around. Let's see. I'll nap. Quick email, and then we will nap some of the folks who uh, wrote in, or excuse me, nap the folks who called in. Sorry. Uh, first person uh, who wrote in. Uh, good evening, Gus. I have a few thoughts on tonight's reading. The dressing up as Patty the Pep is another facet of this of his appetite to consume black people. Dominic was tired of not getting credit for anything, so this motivated him to kill and to make sure the bodies were found. When you, Gus, say we non-white people are not wired the same way as whites, this is a clear example. Everyone that I know, if faced with this problem, wouldn't turn into a racist, homosexual, pedophile, serial killer. Eh. <laughs> Dominic kept white Jesus' birthday decorations up all year round, the religion of white supremacy. Victim, uh, 16-year-old Joseph Brown, a black child, almost any time I have looked into this case, they leave out the fact that there were minors who were also killed. Only in a system of white supremacy would a child get raped and murdered, and it wouldn't draw major headlines. The FBI's vague profile on serial killers is deliberate. The FBI serial killer stereotype is white, male, 30s, high school dropout. I'd like to see if they have cointel profiles and surveillance on white males who fit this classification. And then the rest of it. We'll get to that when we get to the rest of the audio. Other folks wrote in as well. I'll make sure we get to all of the participants who wrote in uh, during the broadcast. Let's see. Get to the folks who dialed in on the phone line. Uh, star 61. Again, for folks who uh, have commentary. Uh, let's see. Uh, I guess folks are spectating or getting their thoughts together. Whatever it is. Star 61, if you have commentary. Let's see. We'll get while folks are getting their thoughts together. We'll nab the other folks who wrote in oh people are right dang people wrote in as we speak people are live time writing in let's see live time write in folks uh constructive action great handle interesting book so far below on my notes the author was dedicated wrote several books this is the fifth on serial killers are the books in this genre instruction manuals that is a question this is very common just to his point about this white fella writing many many books about serial killers oh my goodness like many many authors Catherine Palinero, uh the white woman that we just wrote now she doesn't do serial killers but it's true crime lots of these really uh grisly uh crime novels you know you go and hack up people and all of that sort of thing uh there was an author who <laughs> there was one specific out of many 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 like Hundreds. I don't even think that's an exaggeration out of hundreds of authors who wrote about uh, Wisconsin's Jeffrey Dahmer. One specific author was Rosewood. Jack Rosewood, I think is his name. Uh, I checked. He wrote not only about Joseph Paul Franklin, who we just heard about last book. Remember him might be coming up on the cows in a couple of days again. He wrote about Jeffrey Dahmer and 
I mean, he, I, like, I think a dozen different books. He has a whole serial killer encyclopedia, this guy, Mr. Rosewood. Same question as this an instruction manual. In fact, even, and I wrote it, uh, I posted it before we went live today. We read Kevin Dutton, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, even the title, courtesy of Dr. Rasayan, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Dahmer mentioned in that book. That's white culture. Sit around and get excited. Man, I went today. Question he asked, is this an instruction manual? Person asked me about Rosewood and Dahmer. I said, man, we already did. We had uh, Robert Dvorak on the program. He did a biography on Jeffrey Dahmer. We talked, we had Dr. Welsing on. We talked about Jeffrey Dahmer, like cover that. You know, we didn't know about this guy, Ronald Dominic. I looked University of Washington catalog. They had over 2,000 hits for Jeffrey Dahmer. I even looked at the University of Wisconsin's library catalog. 1,500 hits for Jeffrey Dahmer. Just had a book published like within the last few days. More material coming. Most of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims, non-white males, raped too, just like what we're reading here. Working in a chocolate factory. Wow. That same question we asked before. Who are all these books written for? Is this an instruction manual? Hmm. Is this white culture? That's why I said a lot of this. It wouldn't. It, I don't think we realize. Wow. Two thousand hits for Jeffrey Dahmer that's what we need and more coming hmm encyclopedia of serial killers that's what we need number two why is the author sexualizing the female detective exotic I saw her in the documentary I will keep my opinion to myself dang <laughs> number three for Dominic anti-sex includes violence rape and murder is the reader supposed to feel pity for this serial killer because he was raped before hey didn't we hear that with Joey 22 hmm hmm not the rape aspect but lots of oh poor Joey he had these mental problems and his dad was abusive and an extreme racist yeah poor thing Wonder who raped him? A white male? If so, was this white male a relative or authority figure? I think we'll probably get more on that information in the book. Maybe we'll see how much detail they give us. Number four, racial showcasing of the deceased Mahalia Jackson reminds me of when white people mentioned deceased civil rights leaders. The murderous Dominic had to leave her behind because he's hardly into gospel? Question mark. What was the point of that statement other than showcasing? Is that including some of the flair, right? When they talk about uh, New Orleans or, or places, they'll include some of the like prominent citizens of that area. Does that happen? No, maybe. I'm just trying to see. Is that a reason? Uh, maybe Louis Armstrong. We'll see if he mentions like Louis Armstrong as we're going through here. Like he already he mentioned uh, Lafitte, some of the other uh, figures that are prominent in uh, Louisiana history. So maybe. Maybe we'll see Huey Long. We'll see if some other names that might stick out as we proceed. Maybe. Uh, let's see. Number 
forgot. Oh, number five. Here we go. Why is there a high rate of murder in Louisiana? Question mark. Answer. The usual suspects might get back to some of those names that were mentioned. Pirate Lafitte, among others. We'll get to that later. Number seven. And he treated everyone the same. Uh, <laughs> wacky emoji. No, sir. Produce justice. Uh, let's see. Number eight. The author doesn't want non-white people to be suspicious of the detectives, but I don't think this was written for non-white people. Hey, I don't think. What did I just say? 2,000 hits for Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't think any of those thousands were written for non-white people, victims of racism. Same thing I said for all of the books written about the 22 caliber killings, except for Frank Dobson's book, Black Male. We had him on the program. Other than that, I think all written by white people, written for white people. I don't think Mr. Rosewood is writing for non-white people either, even though Joseph Paul Franklin, Jeffrey Dahmer, and uh, I don't know if he wrote about this guy. I don't think he wrote about Ronald Dominic, maybe? I have to double check. But they're victims. Black people. Black males specifically. I don't think he was writing for us either. Number 10. Oh, wait a minute. Number 9. Sorry. Uh, the murderer likes them young, violates and kills a 16-year-old black child. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Had that pointed out before. And Glenn Dunn, remember that? 14 tops. Number 10, didn't take long to disparage the black victims. Prostitution, gay, they dealt drugs. If only they knew. Patty LaBelle. Again, that should be thought about. White man dressing up like Patty LaBelle. And Maybe I guess we probably have listeners might be younger. They don't really know Patty LaBelle, maybe the no sweet potato pies. She maybe look online, see some of her performances from her, her prime uh, when she was peak- sure, performing. If only you knew that sort of thing. Uh, Patty LaBelle is known for being having like flair, being uh, dramatic, right? A lot of energy when she performs. I'm not just going to come out and sing the song, but I'm going to come out and, you know, kick my shoes off, that type of thing. For a white man to pick her when I'm not out raping and killing 16-year-old black males, I want to be like Patti LaBelle. Helen in New York, uh, if you had commentary on the first portion, the Bayou Strangler, uh, you should be with us. Hello, peaceful greetings. A lot of the notes that you just spoke on, that's what I have written down. Um, So I hope I I don't uh, repeat myself, repeat what was already said. Um, One thing I noticed, um, the bar with the leather, leather and wits, the the bar um Dr. Francis Crest Wellesley moment. Um the author said airtight evidence that that the detectives had to have airtight evidence if they were gonna prosecute whoever the strangler was because they don't know who he is at this moment or whatever. But when it comes to black suspects or whatever, nothing. They don't have to have airtight evidence, or whatever. Oh, it's just any black male will do, any black person will do, let me arrest them. They, you know, they don't have to go through all that. So, um, yeah. Uh, I looked up Tawny Skin, and when I looked it up, I see a mixture of different hues of brown and also white. So I'm still confused on what the detectives look like. I haven't done my research on, on what they look like yet, so I have to do that. Um, 
the mentioning of Disney World, the um, the first, uh, I, I guess, cartoon or whatever about Disney World and the serial killer, um, white culture, that's what I wrote down, and um, Louisiana, heavy on French, African, Spanish, Native American, French, Canadian influences. So French is a language. That can mean white, African, non-white, Spanish. That's the language. Um, I thought it was interesting how how he put that. And yeah, trying to gain our sympathy for the for the um, for Dominique the Strangler. You know, even putting on a soft voice for him. I haven't heard any interviews with him yet. But uh, yeah, I thought that was. An, I definitely picked up on that. And also trying to um, get us to gain sympathy for the detectives working on the case. Oh, they work so, such long hours, blah, blah, blah. Um, they said that the, that the detectives had a healthy lack of prejudice. How would the author know that? That that would be my question for him, but I know he's dead now. But how does he know that? And And I don't even like that word. I don't use prejudice or privilege. Those are not a part of my vocabulary, that, but that was what was said in the book. And, um, yeah, I would like to know what the author's definition of justice and humanity is. That's another one. And um, let me see, what else do I have? I wrote down some notes real quick. What else? What else? What else? Um, do, 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 do. Trying to gain sympathy. Yeah, trying to gain sympathy for um, Dominique. Yeah, I got that. The narrator's voice. Okay, that's all for now. Thank you very much. Helen in New York, home of Joey 22. Much obliged. uh, And looked up Tawny. Mm. Much obliged. Always important to look up these terms and such as we're going through. That's a huge component of counter-racism science, the use of words, definitions, and what have you, particularly when they get to talking about skin complexion. Mm. Tawny. <laughs> heard that, that one before. Much obliged. Telling in New York. Uh, Star 6-1 for other folks if they have uh, commentary to share on the first portion of the reading. Uh, let's see. Um, the dedication in this book is for my daughter, Sarah, whose love and support during the writing of this book made it possible. I'm at least glad that we did not get a dedication to the police officers, uh, which was the case for the last or both of the books uh, that white people wrote on Joey 22, Matt Greider and Catherine Pellinero. Uh Notes that I took, uh, let's see, from the forward. Uh, this says he's talking about this case not getting a lot of attention, which it did not. Uh, he says this is this fifth book. What I've discovered is that when the victims are prostitutes, society, including law enforcement, really doesn't care much about them. But supposing the serial killer is gay and he targets gay men, most of whom are sex workers, that is rare. He totally leaves out these are black males. And I think that is a huge component, maybe the primary component. I have seen Jeffrey Dahmer allegedly engaged in anti-sex too. I just told you 2000 hits. So that didn't bother folks about reporting on his activities, what he was doing. Jerry Sandusky either a lot of attention, black male victims, black people, period, but particularly black male, especially that's 
Two in a row. Serial killers where they killed over a dozen people. Nobody knows. Or we don't remember. Again, the last case was very well reported. Again, this is from the forward. Uh, let's see. The state has a one-of-a-kind parish system, which really exotic names there's that term again instead of counties yet despite all these unique cultural influences there is a supposition in the northern and western parts of the united states that southern cops are prejudiced now this is in 2017 so this is like well after hmm, i don't know eric garner tamir rice lots of rodney king i mean lots of different cases that were not in the South, where there seemed like there could have been a problem with enforcement officers being racist. Uh, let's see. He mentions in the heat of the night, what is my, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Hmm. Uh, let's see, the late Sidney Portier. Uh, he mentioned Dukes of Hazards. Man. Dixie is the song that's played most on the cows. We talked about Dukes of Hazards uh, on the program before. Dixie is the flipping car horn, like literally when they boop, hit the, instead of you know, like uh, Dixie begins to play when they hit the car horn for Dukes of Hazard. And there is a vehicle here in the Seattle area with Dixie as the car horn. Sheriff Roscoe. P. Coltrane. Wow. How does he pop in a book in 2017? And that right, even that right there, that whole television show, like they have the Confederate flag on the car and all of that and trying to get that. (sighs) Permeates the culture everywhere you look. White supremacy, racism, that's all it is. Next, let's see. Hell, he says the detectives on this case on the case of the century's worst serial killer were anything but ignorant racist idiots central casting would have a problem with this one the southern detectives on this case have advanced college degrees allied with street smarts and a healthy lack of prejudice toward gay men he didn't even say prejudice towards black people that's what we were talking about in the heat of the night unless I'm confused and and saw the wrong movie it's been some years is not about prejudice against gay people he didn't just say southern cops are prejudiced against gay people he didn't even say they had a healthy lack of prejudice towards black people. It was a healthy lack of prejudice towards gay men. They said all the victims in this case aren't even gay. So what What are we even talking about? Talking about white author suspected racist Fred Rosen. Uh, let's see. Oh, and they. I don't think the narrator included the quote there is no hunting like the hunting of man and those who have hunted armed men long enough and liked it never care for anything else thereafter Ernest Hemingway I've seen this quote many times this is like a lauded quote in white culture what does it mean to be white hunting people that's why movie that just came out pray predator get to stalk and kill some people uh, the movie they were talking about death wish book we just finished get to go out stalk kill some people or have some revenge yes let's see from the prologue even that this book starts with detective bergeron and her tawny skin going to disney world <laughs> 
we'll forget all the racism of Disney World and Briar Rabbit and, and all of that. Uh, they're going to Disney World. This is a serial killing of black males who are so broke they have to how much okay $30 for me to go outside to a total stranger I don't, he said, I don't even need to know your name $30 will go outside in the alley you can pull down your drawers and I will suck your penis and allow you to ejaculate in my mouth for $30 That's my life. That happens over and under the, that happened for eight years to black males. And we start this book. I'm going to Disneyland. Like what? <clears throat> when they say third, we're like, we are not even in the same universe. Like, why is that the start of the book? Bergeron is in Disney World with her daughter, chilling, tawny, beautiful, mm, curvy, high cheekbones, mm, slightly dark, exotic. Like I agree totally, man. That all of that. Why is she so sexualized? Number one, like what? W T H. Like with this book. That's how we start the prologue. A white author talking. Hmm, I mean, it's not. It can't just be. Oh, the lovely Bergeron and move. I wouldn't have said anything. It's like, oh, okay, moving on. Move, move, move. No. Hmm, voluptuous, tawny, exotic, and it just continues. Large breasts with a tattoo. Like what the hell? Did you go and I'm just standing? Oh, I'm drooling. Oh ripe melons and she's got that nice melanated skin and oh I can't like what in come on man come on come on come on get your hormones together I didn't hear any of the white dudes detectives did, did you all get that wow it's high thick chest of detective Burton well rounded so shoulders he still works out takes care of himself blonde hair what i didn't hear all that what is all this detail about her gee and this is 2017 you can't even say that this was written way back when so you know he's stuck in his way to the like come on me too jesus part one all that was before we can get to chapter one all right part one orleans parish 1998 uh, let's see. I think that's the year of Columbine. Isn't that Columbine? 1998? Let's see. I know what I want. I need a guy to play around with. He has that in italics. I even want to pause right there. I need a guy to play around with. Play around with. You play with children. Lots of Welsing moments in this book. I'm getting me a boy to play with that's what they think about us find me I know where I can go get me a boy to play with he knew he wasn't an attractive man even when he did his Patti LaBelle impression dressed up as the singer 
Nobody liked him. Making friends had never been easy. He'd also never had a long-term relationship with another man. It wasn't for lack of trying, but just as when he had been growing up, Dominic was laughed at, called a slob, a fag, a loser. I said, man, is this the same book? Like, really, my mind is still in Buffalo, but like, wow, did we just hear this? Is that exactly what they said about Joey? Oh, he's a nobody, high school dropout, and he couldn't keep a job, and they teased him, oh, you're a fag and a loser and a wuss and a nobody. Oh, poor thing. Oh, are you serious? Are you serious? Get it together. Like all of that, we're supposed to feel sorry for you, and that, as a result of this, now I got to go and kill me some black males. Y'all have impugned my manhood. I told you, Rick James said they called me a fag. He made lyrics about it, became a millionaire. I'm out of Buffalo. Peace out. Not going to kill me, Joey. These guys, I got no self-esteem. They called me a fag. I'll show you. Okay. Uh, oh man, he says this wasn't San Francisco. Louisiana is a lot more conservative. That word again, and Mr. Fuller has that in the word guide. In fact, danger word right there. Conservative. What? Not so accepting of gay men, trying to come to grips with his. Wait a minute, Mr. Conservative, and like many places in the United States, had not been so accepting of a gay man trying to come to grips with his sexuality. Dominic may have looked roly-poly, but that belied his strong upper body. And get any more detail about that. That right there, I'm going to say you are not being truthful, Mr. Rosen. Now, I have been to Louisiana and call. We have people uh, who call into the cows. They live in Louisiana. I'm sure we have people who've gone to Louisiana. I've been to Louisiana repeatedly and I've been to New Orleans. And we've studied, like I said, hey, Gus T, I could put my pretty signature on that one. This, one of our signature areas of study that we've talked about over and over for years, first time up, so you can go all the way back, half has never been told, book we reference all the time, maybe should be in our top 10, in that book they talk about, hey, New Orleans for centuries has had a reputation for all kinds of body illicit sexual activity, including prostitution. That's New Orleans tradition talk about that all the time learn your local state history that's New Orleans Nala all of the mulatto he did the extensive chapter about that go down there and get you mm, pick of the litter I like the, the quadrums and the mulattoes that's what I like that's that's Lafitte he didn't even put that in he's not just a pirate the pirates somebody said that when you hear pirate you should think oh slave ship that's what that is that's Lafitte. He was a slave ship captain. Oh, that explained which also slave ships. Hey, that's all about rape. That's even in lame roots. But I say that is false. Not only does it extend from slavery where, hey, New Orleans has always been about you can go in all kinds of sexually illicit behavior, even in the 1960s. Now, why do I know that? Gus T got to all of this encounter racism. One area was studying the Kennedy assassination that is heavily linked to New Orleans when you study that that even comes up right there that would that be 60 years ago had a reputation of all kinds anti-sex drugs these sort of hangouts rawhide and what have you uh, uh, 
the French Quarter. Oh, well, you can go out that in the bar. The Mardi Gras, you go out and rip your shirt off in the street. You're going to tell me that, oh, we are uh, so-called conservatives. We got a problem with homosexual activity and LGBT. Get out of here. And all that Catholicism, don't let me bring up fondling Father Freeman again. Don't let me have to look and see how many children have been raped at the parishes down in southern Louisiana. Get to that later. But I say no. That is a lie. Totally. This is not an area. Oh, we just got a problem. And he was just teased. and that, nah, Wrong. That is a long tradition. And I don't think if you're a white man, white woman, white anything, you are LGBTQ on into infinity. I think you'll be okay in New Orleans. Anytime over the last, I'm going to say 150 years. You can call me on that one if I'm in error. Let's see. Uh, bu- 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 our caller at four four three four with us as well four four three oh might be I don't know caller at four four three four does you have commentary as well shadow yes greetings Gus can I be heard yes sir can I can I be heard okay sorry this is a first time caller from Southern Florida um, I was wondering um, what perspective. Was it was the author describing the the killer's perspective during the killings, or um, was he describing the victims? Like, how does he know the intimate thoughts of the killer or victims when describing these things? And that was it. Thank you. Much obliged, first time caller. Much obliged. Hope it's worthy of your time and energy. Uh, he says at the beginning of the book. Author's note, the story is based on primary on the scene reporting in the bayous of Louisiana, the investigative transcript of the case and extended interviews with the primary detectives. So I suspect because the detectives were able to interview uh, Dominic after he was captured and even before uh, and he was able to get the record, I guess he got files like Pelinero did, that this would be what Dominic is describing about these events. I don't think there would be any record about the folks that were killed and what they thought. So I think, and they have like in some of the documentaries, they have portions of some of the recorded interviews where you can hear Ronald Dominic kind of describing some of these killings. Uh, So I suspect he was able, he might even been able to get some of those recordings so he could, you know, get exact verbatim him describing some of these killings so he could do it that way. That's what I suspect. Cause some of this is in quotes and that type of thing. That would be my suspicion. Let's see. Uh, star six, one other folks have commentary. I'll get to some of my other notes and kind of keep an eye out and see if other folks have comments before we get to the second audio. Let's see. So I was in chapter one. Let's see. The first exchange where he's going to kill Oliver LeBanks, and I guess it's these two black males, uh, Mr. LeBanks, and he's talking to the other guy about why you're going here. The narrator switches his tone, and it it reminded me very much of when we read the Turner Diaries, 
and the very stereotypical way that the black characters were voiced like nobody else sounds that way nobody else has that sort of accent like it's the very kind of minstrelly uh, kind of what you know inflection type of a thing like I mean really I had been in New Orleans like I mean really <laughs> like, if you want to try and give it the New Orleans twang and how they talk down there the way Mr. Ricky Wallace and some of the other folks that is not it what was there that is just kind of the typical menstrual racist performance uh, of blackface that I'm accustomed to with white people uh, let's see and again all of this and the term hustler is used I would much ra- victim in every victim way before the rape and killing victim that this is my quality of life I'm not you know these folks are 16 20 years old why am I not in school not out here I gotta be out at the bar and rawhide and hoping some old white dude will give me $30 to go outside and suck on his penis for 20 minutes like are you serious I can't get a scholarship so I can go to school I'm young like it's not like I'm old and wasted my life and I'm 70 years old and decrepit and can't do anything like come on I'm like 16 20 21 can I not get community college you got high school dropout Mark Furman can't go to community three of them he said can go to community you can't even get me to a community college in Louisiana come on that's the best I can do be out here hustling come on that's a disgrace that right there victim don't even call me that right there is just adding I can't even say that's adding additional mistreatment on top of everything else I get to be labeled a hustler and not a victim of white supremacy that that's how I got to make a living come on Uh, let's see it was already crowded to overflowing the shirtless men sitting even this I would have appreciated a breakdown like man is this a spot that's no because that's what I said this sort of thing has been in New Orleans for decades excuse me excuse me excuse me centuries so the people that are in this bar with the whips and no shirt on is this mostly like older white guys because I have a hard time believing that he said like 40s and 50 these guys with their paunch and what have you brandishing their with even the use of their brandishing their whipping I mean that's correct use but I mean hey I'm going to think of brandishing enforcement officer with a firearm brandishing but is so is this a spot where old white dudes know oh these broke down and not because he said that they know they can get young guys here the older leather boys mingled with younger guys so is this like known because we've heard this before even minister Malcolm X talked about this he was into the same thing in New York and he said it was white guys even yes they had a thing for black girls but they also had a thing for black boys anyway would appreciate more detail there let me get the importance of words I just said so when we read Catherine Pellinero's book I made a big to do Ernie Smith black male he worked with Joseph G. Christopher at Canisius College he said in the New York Times after work they 
fooled around. I made a big to-do about that. I said, hey, that phrase, fool around, has a sexual connotation to it. And he doubled down on it. He came back sentences later, literally the next paragraph after saying that he and Joey after work would go to the gym and wrestle and fool around that he and Joey would also, hey, same pattern, go and chase street workers. We deduced that that meant sex workers, prostitutes. He said that they would go and chase street workers to what? Fool around. Brand new book. We moved out of New York State, moved to Louisiana and moved 25 years. Oh, excuse me, not even that far yet. We're only in late 90s, so we moved about 15 years in the future. He says, hey, do you like to have a good time? LeBanks asked, drinking his beer casually. I like to fool around, Dominic replied. Watch that word, fool around. No fooling around with white people. Didn't that moron say alcohol, white people, one of the most dangerous combinations in the known universe? You consuming alcohol in this environment. Oh, my God. And that was standard. I think we're going to hear that a whole lot uh, where these victims, many of them consuming alcohol, narcotics or what have you. He says, if LeBanks had been paying attention, how many times have we heard that? Ricky Wallace, not thinking, not paying attention, dealing with the weather. And that's again, come back to who's more informed about white supremacy racism. You're in the company of a white stranger. We're going out to an alley and I'm not even paying attention. I'm not even thinking. I'm hopping in the vehicle with a white man. I don't know if he's armed serial killer anything I'm just hopping in the car let's ride now again these are all victims terrorized to the point where hey just to eke out a living see if I can pay to eat have a place to stay do anything with my life I get it but I mean wow at least you want to be paying attention you know try to be much try to be aware of the danger of white people like woo, I'm gonna have to have an extraordinary code because these whites are dangerous and I would be the type of person they could kill and no one who be missed gotta walk off real car to the far it's not to the car it's not where he said it's gonna be parked at and there's no lights and all the rest of it I could be killed and no one would hear or see me he knew that I didn't see chapter two he says he's talking all this about how Dominic dumped these bodies purposely purposely so that they could be found he could have hid them or let the alligators eat them which I mean wow talk about this case was barely reported we wouldn't even know about this he said what pleasure it would give him when the body was found the body had to be found I need credit for this even with all of that, it took them eight years to catch this guy. Same thing we said with Joseph G. Christopher. If he hadn't ran his mouth when he was in greater confinement, they had 2,000 suspects. He was not one. That case went on for seven months. Great 
police were folks had said for a while all of these police shows CSI and everything where they show wow the police are amazing they get their microscopes and lab work and get on their computer and uh huh and then lame high school dropouts that's the standard FBI profile eight years even Joseph G seven months and if he had been quiet that would have been another one they wouldn't have solved next uh, see like Mitchell and Pierre he was African American let's Larry Ransom this we talking about he was African American and at last been seen in St. Charles Ransom was 38 years old Dominic was changing his victim of choice showing age wasn't a factor serial killers usually usually zero in on a type and remain consistent he had his type is black males the age just didn't seem to be that much of a factor Joseph G Christopher same thing Glenn Dunn 16 excuse me 14 I got so many young 14 years old for Glenn Dunn at the tops grocery store and then I think Harold Green was like 32 Parlor Edwards in his 70s same thing wide age range uh, of the victims just they're all black males doesn't matter black male let's see he says Dominic didn't know it but he made an enemy of Dennis Thornton again uh, all of this you know big ups to the police officers we had that in the last books with Joseph G. Christopher Dennis Thornton if he was you know all that and the super enemy and everything eight years can't even blame Hurricane Katrina because he started killing people in 1998 probably had been killing people before 97 but I mean he said he killed so many people that he couldn't even remember how many people he killed we just got 23 is the number that's what I can remember what we got evidence for but (laughs) for so many reasons we don't know how many people he killed but I mean just going with what they got 97 that's Katrina was 8 years later You can't even blame like all that time. Come on. Let's see. Chapter three. They said, oh, yeah, uh, they're talking about the uh, medical examiners and all that. Thornton was well suited to the job. A street intelligent, well-educated homicide investigator who knew his trade. He had a bachelor. In science. See, they didn't get all into the physical, you know, broad strogers, strong cheekbones and jawline full head of hair no pun they didn't get come on come on come on uh so we get all of this academic pedigree right they didn't even do that for bergeron just got you know her big bosom and everything i guess that's her credentials uh and he treated everyone the same black white made no difference all were people who deserved his best really what evidence is there of that ain't no footnote who testified to that who said that did he say that this is louisiana Louisiana, their police department for New Orleans specifically, man, they were on the uh, Department of Justice consent decree list, just like Ferguson and Seattle and Newark, many others. Uh, Let's see. Good According to Judy and Mitchell, there was nothing on the order oh they go to the rawhide this place like I said this has been legend in Louisiana and I appreciate if anybody if I am in error let me know but my my study of Louisiana 
this year, not just New Orleans, but Louisiana, but for sure, New Orleans, known for all sorts of sexual debauchery, as I said, not for decades, for centuries. Uh, let's see. Fifteen days after Oliver LeBanks was murdered, Joseph Brown turned up dead. His partially clothed body was found on the western end of Veterans Memorial Boulevard in Kenner that gave venue to the detectives of St. Charles Parish who soon discovered that Brown, an African-American, was all of 16 years old. Again, like, come on. How does everybody not know about this case? How does that immediately not become national attention? You know, CNN existed by this point. The Internet existed by this point man black male privilege I guess uh, I appreciated all of the information about the FBI profilers being so inadequate uh, and cookie cutter all the rest of it because we had so much about the profilers from Pelinero's book and talking about that they were so accurate with their profile and it was exactly what they just said you know white 30s dropout uh, all the rest of it poor social skills that's what they said about Joey and she was saying that they were even accurate about the Atlanta child murder and all the rest like come on uh, And in fact I read that twice today about this case that the FBI profilers even if they may have been correct here their profiles are inaccurate they don't have a lot of details it generally is not helpful at all and can even sometimes misdirect uh, investigations uh, let's see I'm going to have to look for the Attic Advocate piece. They said they broke the story. Uh, that's one I did not get. They do not have the Advocate archives, at least physically, at the University of Washington Library. Anyway. Um, oh, and then he dumped the body in front of the uh, Angel Meha. I think that's it. M-E-J-I-A. Homeless victim. Uh, dumped in front of a dumpster. And they even had one profiler who talked about that that specifically as opposed to like a freeway or lake. Not that any of it's good, but a dumpster may signify that something significant happened there where maybe this guy fought back or did something that especially upset him. Like, you know, this no good nigger. I'm just, you know, go dump him, you know, in the trash to show, trash to show his specific worthlessness. Anywho, I'll pause there. Uh, if folks have uh, commentary or what have you, write it down. We'll go ahead and get to the second audio component. That way we'll have time for other folks to share and read the rest of our emails and all of that good stuff. Uh, picking up chapter four, Fred Rosen's The Bayou Strangler, Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. Chapter four, The Sure Tip-Off. Terrebonne and Lafouche Parishes, November 1 to December 31, 1999. Mitchell Johnson was the kind of guy that Dominique liked to fuck and kill. A well-built 34-year-old black man. Of course, Dominique didn't know his name. That didn't matter. Johnson's body was dumped under the same overpass where LeBanks's had been discarded. Police found Johnson literally a few feet away from the exact spot where LeBanks had been discovered. Thornton was puzzled and enraged. It was as if the killer were playing a game. Perhaps he had seen or heard the reports of the investigation and was screwing with the heads of the posse that was after him. Was the killer so supremely overconfident to the point of insanity 
or was he purposely sloppy, hoping to get caught? Thornton didn't know yet. The autopsy report came back that Johnson, like the rest, had been raped and strangled. Same M.O. Witnesses said they last saw Johnson in Kenner. There was a suspicious guy cruising around about the same time Johnson disappeared. Witnesses gave Thornton a rough description of a white male, mid-thirties, receding hairline, puffy cheeks. A police sketch artist produced a picture of the suspect. Was this the killer? The guy didn't look very dangerous, except maybe in the eyes. They seemed to just stare out at you, without registering any emotion. Sketch in hand, the detective decided to reach out to both the mainstream and gay media in the New Orleans area. Given the fact that every victim was male and had been raped, a decidedly unusual M.O., the police thought that the killer was targeting gays. In November 1999, the New Orleans Times-Picayune, the city's only big newspaper, published the sketch of the suspect, reporting that police were describing him as a serial killer targeting men in the area. Later, officials wouldn't know whether Dominique had seen that article or if it played any role in his decision to pick up and leave Booty. But in November 1999, shortly after it was published, he quit his job with the county and drove his trailer home to Homa. Homa is only 58 miles southwest of New Orleans, off of Interstate 90, next to the Gulf of Mexico. Booty was a New Orleans suburb. Homa was way south. Don Bergeron had already been in Homa for a decade. Her oil man father moved his family there when Bergeron was a teenager in the 1980s. Southern Louisiana's economy is dependent upon the oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico, which pump up black gold and jobs. Lit up like a Christmas tree at night, the deep water horizon was the biggest. After high school, Bergeron went south to attend Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge where she got her Bachelor of Arts in Criminal Justice in 1994. Moving back up to Homa, she joined the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office. She could have joined the Homa Police Department, which had venue inside the actual city, but the Sheriff's Office roamed the entire parish, and there was something appealing to Bergeron about that. A deputy is a street cop working for the county, not the town or city. As a sheriff's deputy riding in a squad car, Bergeron quietly observed the type of crimes detectives are asked to investigate. Among them was sexual abuse, which she investigated as a member of the Sheriff's Homicide and Juvenile Division. The parish had a huge sex abuse rate, with a significant number of cases of parents sexually abusing their children. Her education and demeanor placed her way above the average deputy sheriff in her county. Promoted to detective, Bergeron spent a lot of time in the interview room taking statements from parents who would claim they had sex with their child in the same way their parents had had sex with them. Parish detectives spoke privately about how some juvenile abuse came about as a result of Cajun culture. They said that some Cajuns accepted parents having sex with their children as the natural order of things. Squad detectives were also called on to investigate homicides. Homicides usually fell into one run-of-the-mill category or another, with
with the common motives of money, sex, and revenge. Learning her trade, Bergeron balanced her professional life with her private one. She married a cop and had a child. She had a funny, knowing laugh, which you need when you have to juggle warrants and a child. And then life in Homa changed when Ronald J. Dominique came back home from Booty. He drove down Broadway, past the town square, where more than a century earlier, the bodies of Union soldiers mutilated by Southern guerrillas were left to rot in the sun. He took a left to go across one of the town's bridges, over the alligator-infested bayous that cut right through the town. Dominique went over to Bayou Blue Road, a long street, mostly rural, with cane fields and the occasional house bordering the highway. He turned in at one of them, his sister Laney's place, and parked in the yard. There, she and her husband welcomed him, allowing her brother to hook up his mobile home to the electricity and water in the yard. People in the parish identified themselves by the road they lived on. That's how Dominique became a Bayou Blue man, by settling at his sister's home on that road. Directly across the street was a church, its pale white paint peeling from the sun, the high humidity, and occasional hurricane. Dominique was a man on the run, but no one, including his sister, knew that. He was eager to assume an appearance of normalcy as soon as possible, lest anyone see the police sketch. However, it had not been distributed as widely as Dominique might have assumed. In fact, the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office and Homa Police had not been sent the sketch. Unless he made a mistake, Dominique was safe. Little did anyone in Homa realize, a serial killer was now in their midst. With the successful hookup to electricity and water, Dominique had all the comforts of home. Yet he needed a second trailer, which he would later put to good use. He bought a smaller, beat-up trailer that he parked next to the larger one. And having to support himself, Dominique went to work as a laborer for Caro Produce on Bryan Street. This wasn't New York City, where men could walk around arm-in-arm arm and not raid a second look. This was Homa, Louisiana, where small, long lakes called bayous leak out into the Gulf of Mexico. Dominique sought attention from a world that ridiculed him, at worst, for being gay, and at best, for being homely. He did and said nothing to stand out. In conversations with people, he was nice and polite, his speech peppered with, yes ma'am, and no ma'am, like some southern gentleman. People looked through him, like he didn't exist. In a sense, he didn't. Terrebonne Parish has a high rate of illiteracy. Many do not read the newspapers or watch television. They knew nothing about the shoeless serial killer and his eight murders in the northern parishes. Beneath Homa's sleepy southern appearance was an undercurrent of abysmal poverty, where people lived in shacks, couldn't afford cars or car insurance, and rode bicycles to get around. The town had exactly two gay bars and a slew of others, where whatever beer was cheap or on special was the beverage of choice. The poor residents lived on the fringes, in the shacks and apartments off the main streets of the town, 
bordering the bayou. Some lived farther out in the country. Wherever you were, one type of coyote or another roamed at night. Michael Rydell Vincent was a young African-American man who lived in a rundown apartment on Peter Street. He, like his killer, sported a mustache and a goatee. He'd been a criminal long enough to have an AKA, also known as, which in his case was Chris Vincent. Regardless of the name he used, Vincent was a small guy, five foot seven and 121 pounds soaking wet. Despite his lack of size, or perhaps because of it, he'd been arrested for aggravated battery. His record indicated that he hustled sex with men, a record that came to an end when he vanished on New Year's Eve, 1999. The next day, a motorist on Highway 7 in neighboring Lafouche Parish saw a body that had been dumped on a barbed wire fence right off the road. The motorist made a police report, and detectives arrived to process the crime scene. Because of the holiday, the autopsy had to wait until everyone returned to work on the morning of January 3, 2000. The autopsy began at 8.20 a.m. in the coroner's office in Jefferson Parish. Dr. Susan M. Garcia was the forensic pathologist in charge. She also had two assistants from the coroner's office, detectives Chad Shelby and Jason Fongi of the Lafouche Parish Sheriff's Office. During the external examination, Garcia noted that Vincent had been wearing blue jeans, blue boxer underwear, white socks, a white T-shirt, and a reddish-green long-sleeved plaid shirt. Inside the right front pocket, Garcia found a key ring with two keys. In the right pants pocket were four pieces of crack, the deadly, addictive, and relatively cheap cocaine derivative. Dr. Garcia placed the drugs, keys, and loose change in evidence envelopes, which she turned over to Shelby and Fangi. Then Garcia got to the heart of it. She noted two linear abrasions on the upper right chest crossing the right breast, two superficial cuts on the lower right side, and a small superficial scrotal abrasion. She saw the ligature marks on Michael Vincent's wrists. Garcia looked at Vincent's brown eyes and noted, fine pinpoint conjunctival petechiae bilateral and one coalescent focus of sclerotic hemorrhage on the right. Petechiae are red dots under the skin caused by capillaries that have leaked. There can be many medical reasons for this kind of condition, including autoimmune disorder, viral infections, bone marrow disorder, and bloodstream infections. If you ruled out all of those natural reasons, Petechiae is a sure tip-off to strangulation. The condition occurs when the vessels burst in the eye due to pressure on the throat. The burst capillaries then cause the red dots under the eye tissue. Examining the mouth, Garcia saw that Vincent had one solid gold-capped tooth. The rest of his teeth were in fairly good condition. Vincent had been lucky that way. Dental care was not exactly the most important thing in a street hustler's milieu. He certainly didn't have dental insurance, and neither did the people he hung out with. The pathologist used her scalpel to open the body and a saw to take off the skull cap in the usual autopsy fashion. She noted no brain abnormalities or hemorrhaging. 
As for the trunk, there were no abnormal fluid accumulations in any body cavity. That meant no internal bleeding from beatings, guns, knives, or anything else. Finishing her examination, the coroner saw a tattoo of the letters E-O-G on the back of the right hand and a tattoo with the name Vincent on the back of the left hand. Garcia concluded her findings as follows. Diagnoses? Circumstances surrounding death are unclear, but subtle findings at autopsy suggested that homicidal asphyxia is the cause of death. Manner of death is homicide. Homicides due to asphyxia are not only relatively uncommon, the term itself, homicidal asphyxia, is rather vague. Depriving a victim of oxygen can be done in a variety of ways. One way, as indicated in Vincent's case, was squeezing the soft tissues of the neck. When his brain had been denied oxygen for a little more than three minutes, Vincent died. What was not noted in the autopsy report was whether the victim had been raped. Once again, a matter of linkage. If Vincent hadn't been, then it could be the work of another killer. None of it, though, really made any difference. The killer had left nothing behind. No semen, no body fluids, no prints, no fibers. Once again, nothing. He may have been sloppy in the way he dumped his victims, as Thornton had supposed, but he seemed to be forensically aware. Nobody had seen the black Sonoma truck driven by the portly guy with the mustache and goatee when he dropped off his latest kill on the barbed wire fence in the middle of the night. The sex with Vincent had been good, but Dominique really got his sexual high from killing. It was something indescribable even to himself, let alone to anyone else. All he knew was that he had to do it. For the police, the disposal of Vincent's body in the open was a tip-off that the killer had changed his M.O., a warning that what was to come was the unexpected. In order to put all the pieces together, a task force would be necessary. Usually commissioned by the state, such a task force would combine local, state, and federal resources into one unit assigned to tracking down the serial killer. But getting the approval from the upper echelons in the state hierarchy to form such a task force had not yet occurred. Complicating matters, the killing stopped for six months, twelve months, eighteen months, twenty-four months. For two years, the serial killer was suddenly inactive. Thornton and the rest of the cops investigating the killings were at a dead end. In itself, that wasn't unusual. It was the cat-and-mouse game that some serial killers liked to play. Chapter 5. Pizza Man Louisiana wasn't the only state with a serial killer on the loose. Kansas was having a similar problem with another gentleman who enjoyed killing. Dennis Rader was leading an anonymous life as a dog catcher in Park City, a suburb of Wichita, Kansas. He hadn't murdered in more than a decade. After killing ten times, he had stopped. Police were still looking for the self-branded BTK serial killer, while his alter ego, Rader, was doing public service announcements in his dog catcher role. Back in Louisiana, Dennis Thornton did not let up, even if the killer had. 
he kept scanning the reports of southern Louisiana murders, looking for a lead. Nothing came up. He couldn't figure it out. What had happened? Had the guy moved out of state? There were no bolos, beyond the lookout, from other states that would indicate a killer with the same M.O. In between the demands of his regular caseload, Thornton kept looking. But, once again, Ronald J. Dominique hid in plain sight. And simultaneously got in some good eating. Al dente. Dominique came from Thibodeau, the county seat of Lafouche Parish, halfway between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. He grew up there, in a small town where everyone knew everyone's business. He attended Thibodeau High School, where he was in the glee club and sang in the chorus. Although Dominique was in the closet in school, that didn't stop his classmates from ridiculing him for being gay. With six siblings, Dominique came from a very large family. As a child, the future serial killer claimed that a priest molested him. His parents didn't believe him, though priest molestation was not an unusual occurrence at the time. As later events would prove, the Catholic Church and local police in many venues from Boston to Los Angeles conspired to protect pedophiliac priests. Dominique's accusations did nothing to endear him to his parents. The first time Dominique had a run-in with the police was in June 1985, when he got caught making dirty phone calls. Arrested and charged with telephone harassment of some of the parish's local residents, he pleaded guilty. He was smart enough to pay a $74 fine, plus court costs, to avoid jail time. If someone in law enforcement had been tracking Dominique in the first place, he could have been flagged as someone to watch. Unfortunately, at the time, authorities didn't keep tabs on sex offenders. And he behaved himself. Dominique stayed out of trouble with the law for almost nine more years. He next appeared on law enforcement's radar in May 1994. Like too many, he was arrested and charged with drunk driving. Again, nothing suspicious there. It wasn't until two years later that Dominique's nocturnal activities turned serious. He's trying to kill me! A man screamed loudly as he fled from Dominique's bedroom window. Neighbors heard the scream and immediately called the parish police. Arriving quickly, Lafouche Deputy Sheriff Jimmy McKay arrested Dominique for forcibly raping the partially clad young man and booked him on a $100,000 bond. Dominique couldn't make the bond, so while the case was winding its way to trial, Dominique spent three months in the county lockup. Dominique would later claim that during the time he was in custody, prisoners raped him, making his anus particularly susceptible to splitting during sex. That made him determined never to return to jail. Yet, if Dominique were convicted of rape, he would serve hard time in Angola the state's notorious prison for its worst felons. Finally, Dominique caught a break. The district attorney found himself without a complainant. The young man who claimed that Dominique had raped and almost killed him could not be found. Dominique then had the constitutional right to file a writ of habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is a judicial mandate that orders the prosecution to bring the defendant to court 
to determine whether he is being imprisoned unlawfully, without evidence. If there was no complainant, there was no case. In November 1996, the judge continued the case indefinitely, meaning there would be no prosecution. Ronald J. Dominique was set free, yet his jail time had a profound impact on his life, and eventually the lives of others. At all costs, he was determined never to go back. He vowed that anyone who threatened him with going to the police over anything he did would wind up dead. From 1997 through New Year's Day 2000, Dominique followed through on that vow. After that, he didn't kill again for two long years. During that time, Thornton wondered what had happened to the serial killer he had been tracking. The answer to Thornton's question was twofold. The first was that Dominique had gotten in trouble with the law, but not for rape and murder. The wannabe Patti LaBelle impersonator had received a summons in May 2000 to appear in a HOMA court on charges of disturbing the peace. What had happened? Well, Dominique had argued forcefully with someone in public, so loud that police were called. Since it was a simple misdemeanor, he was able to plead guilty and pay a fine to avoid even appearing in court. Once again, a court unknowingly offered mercy to the killer. And once again, Dominique still couldn't stay out of trouble. Almost two years later, on February 10, 2002, the Bayou Blue Man was arrested in Homa for allegedly slapping a woman during a Mardi Gras parade. Dominique had accused a woman of hitting a baby stroller in a parking lot with her car. Though the woman apologized, Dominique continued his verbal assault. Finally, the anger boiled to the surface, and he couldn't contain it. It is exceedingly rare in the middle of his killing cycles for a serial killer to keep getting in trouble with the law. If a serial killer has a record, it's usually low-level offenses that take place prior to the killings. And, once again, a police force that had no idea who he really was made a deal. In itself, there was nothing unusual about that. Low-level offenders like Dominique frequently make deals that keep them out of jail. This time, the deal was that instead of standing trial, Dominique was able to enter a parish offenders program. Such alternative sentencing programs had been common in Louisiana. The idea was to give the offender a second chance while trying to curb future criminal behavior. Alternative sentencing also reduced the number of felons in prison and saved taxpayers their hard-earned wages. This time, Dominique made the most of the chance that the state gave him. He was a model citizen to the others in the parish program. Meeting all the conditions so he could be discharged and avoid police contact, he came back into society in October 2002. By then, Dominique was busy with his second job. There isn't a place in the United States that doesn't have at least one Domino's Pizza franchise. Homa had three. If you happened to live in Homa, and you ordered a pizza from Domino's, serial killer Ronald J. Dominique was one of the delivery men who would come to your door. But Domino's alone couldn't cut it. He still needed more than the pizza money to pay his bills.
So Dominique delivered pizzas in the evening while maintaining the day job at the produce company. Work seemed to fill up his time, and for a while he appeared redeemed. He seemed to enjoy helping people. He was a good employee and tried to be a solid member of the community. The local Lions Club boasted the dubious distinction of signing up the serial killer as a full member. Dominique spent weekend afternoons calling out the bingo numbers for senior citizens because he genuinely liked helping out. The Lions Club membership director would later recall that he was well-liked by everyone there. Maybe Dominique had finally found a place where he felt accepted. But he had other ideas. In space, no one can hear you scream. That was the tagline for the hit Ridley Scott film Alien, 1979. The line was particularly significant for what Dominique had in mind. Open-air isolation. No one can hear you scream. Just like the one sheet for the movie said. Killing in seclusion was just the smart thing to do. Delivering pizzas all over Homa, Dominique got to see all the young, attractive men. The hustlers, mostly black, working the streets, looking for tricks, or drugs, or both. Some were gay, some straight. Made no difference to him. He just wanted to get them into his car without a struggle. It required a delicate tongue, and maybe some visual stimulation. Flashing money. Serial killers like Dominique rely on guile more than force to ensnare their victims. They are con men. But while the hustler thought it was a simple business deal, Dominique was setting him up for something else entirely. In order to get his prey into a wide open space where no one would see or hear anything, Dominique went to his brother-in-law, Sam Trimble, who unwittingly helped him. Trimble worked at the remote Dixie shipyard. To get to it, you had to ride three miles over a rutted dirt road that passed through the bayous. It's terrible on the suspension. Apart from some rusting hulks tied up to the weathered wooden dock in front, the place was desolate. Dominique pulled his trailer over to the middle of a field, where there was nothing around. It was so dark here at night, the stars stood out bright in the sky. There wasn't a whisper on the breeze. Such a remote, isolated sight would do well. But there was the problem of body disposal. Pathologists have made a study of how bodies fare in the bayou. They've learned that warm bayou waters accelerate decomposition, making subsequent identification difficult. The longer a body remains in the bayou, the harder it is to identify. Going inside his trailer, Dominique looked in the mirror. Staring back was a man who was unattractive to himself and to other men. He didn't have sex with men that he didn't buy. What would it be like to have a real relationship? To love someone else who loved him? He was a sociopath. Dominique was not capable of feeling such love. He may have been good calling the bingo numbers at the Lions Club, but nobody wanted to socialize with him, let alone be his friend. It wasn't that he was unfriendly or impolite. People at work identified him for what he was, a loner who kept to himself. By all accounts, Dominique was someone who kept his distance. 
In spite of the FBI's involvement and the growing number of murder victims, the story of the Southern Louisiana serial killer failed to be reported nationally. The victims just didn't raid a line of print or a single soundbite. It wouldn't have made Thornton feel any better to know that the man he was hunting had already killed ten men, tying him with Kansas's now notorious BTK serial killer, who was responsible for killing ten and was still at large at the time. BTK killed white, middle-class people. Because of his choice of victims, BTK's activities raided extensive headlines during his three-decade-long killing spree. The people of Wichita were still on the alert for BTK. But by 2002, in the wake of Al-Qaeda's attack on the Twin Towers, the nation had a whole lot of things more important to worry about. America's citizens were on high alert. Where would the terrorists strike next? People were more observant and suspicious. Up in Homa, Louisiana, people were no less paranoid. Little American flags had been attached to every car all over town. No one suspected the real danger in their midst was a serial-killing pizza delivery man. He wasn't a foreigner. He wasn't a Muslim. And he wasn't a stranger. He was homegrown. At that very moment, Dominique was restless. He knew and longed for the feeling of tying a guy up with rope then forcefully pushing his cock into the guy's ass, his cock pulsating, his strong hands tightening around the guy's neck as he struggled. Sometimes he used a belt or a rope instead. Of course, he needed to be extra careful of anal sex. The last thing he needed was another operation. Before he went to prison and was raped, he had been working offshore on one of the oil platforms back in the early 1990s, and the black pepper he ate went down through his stomach, through his colon, and into his rectum. In his ignorance, Dominique believed it was the black pepper that led to his operation and the tight stitch-up. It was actually due to a bacterial infection. Context of White Supremacy We'll pick up next week on Chapter 6, John Doe. That, see, <clears throat> so the third to last paragraph, that right there, written for by whites, white culture, all of why there are 10,000, excuse me, 2,000 hits for Jeffrey Dahmer, racists love consuming this sort of content. Context of White Supremacy, the number 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The email, untiljustice at gmail.com. Get our emails in, wowzers. Uh, so I'm going back. This is the remainder, our email. And we had a number of listeners who pitched in, made sure that Gusty had the audio for this book. Uh, several folks. So I had backups just in case there was any problem with the audio. Enormous thanks 
to the loyal investors uh, who took their time and energy. They could have been enjoying the end of their 2022 summer and they hung out on their phone, computer, all the above uh, to make sure that we had the audio. Enormous thanks for your investment. Uh, So one of those folks read the first portion of his commentary. The remainder he writes in. Dominic was molested by a priest at this point. Raping white priests are standard in white culture. Absolutely. Uh, The described self-loathing and diagnosing Dominique of mental disorders is very present early in this text. This, too, is becoming a pattern of seemingly trying to make the readers feel sympathy for the racist killer. Since the text isn't that long and there wasn't much coverage, I would have been much more appreciative for more information on the victims, such as Oliver LeBanks, 16-year-old Joseph Brown, and others, as opposed to the sympathy the author is trying to draw. I feel like we've heard this pattern before. Victim Dutrell Woods was described as a real piece of work which was very insensitive and tacky. His mother, Margaret Woods, <clears throat> sent something... Oh, wait a minute. I don't think we got that far. Pause. We'll pick up that right there. Uh, let's see. Other person wrote in. I didn't get any of uh, this person's commentary at all. Let's see. Different investor wrote in. Greetings, Gus. It will be interesting to read this book, read this text, and look for parallels with the twenty-two caliber killer forward number one the detectives on this case of this case of the century's worst serial killer were anything but ignorant racist idiots an example of reverse racial focal pointing certifying that these are the white people who are not racist as opposed to racial focal pointing certifying those who are racist Mm, appreciate the explanation interesting that the author is emphasizing that these race soldiers are not racist right from the very beginning of the text without providing any evidence. That's what I said. Like, dang, at least give me a black friend or something. Like, they at least Ernie, right? And the last one, like, we fooled around and Dennis is my man. And I, you know, nothing. Number two, I've written four bucks books on serial killers. This is the fifth fascination with serial killers by the suspected racist author. Seems to be an important aspect of white culture. That's what I concluded prologue <clears throat> Bergeron her t-shirt swelled over her large voluminous breasts with a tattoo I found this interesting that the author would put this seemingly salacious information in a book rife with anti-sexual behavior for what purpose is this information important to the story question mark number two Patty Labrell impersonation the delectable negro homoeroticism and human consumption within U.S. slave culture by Vincent Woodard. Cow's Book Club. Chapter 1. I like to fool around. Dominic replied something similar was said by one of Christopher's black friends. Co-workers. Arnie Smith. Yes, it was. Chapter 2. FBI. The profile. The profile of the serial killer is a white, poor male. Doesn't have much of an education. I'm not sure this is accurate. I briefly looked up a few of the most famous serial killers. Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Dennis Rader, a BTK killer, and they did not seem to come from poor backgrounds, and some even graduated college. Chapter 3. LeBanc's girlfriend, Judy Jason. I would think that the author would explore this a little further. Were they engaged in a sexual relationship? 
Uh, Number two, FBI serial killer project 1970s without scientific evaluation, lack of real scientific studies, specious study. Interesting that with all the resources available to them, that the FBI would not have improved their analytical capabilities. I guess they were too busy with Pro. Got to keep an eye on the niggers, yes. Chapter 4. Parents had sex with their children. Juvenile abuse. Cajun culture. The natural order of things. Cajun culture, or maybe more accurately, white culture. Hmm. Number 2. Poor residents on the fringes. One type of coyote or another roamed at night. I looked up the the slang definitions for coyote, Mexican word, which are numerous, including Mexican human smugglers, white trash people, unattractive women, e.g. coyote ugly. Oh, I have heard that. Okay. Number three, Dominic's sexual high came from killing akin to the apparent ecstasy experienced by the white mobs engaged in the lynching and castrating of black males chapter 5 number 1 Dominique the priest molested him not unusual Catholic priest and police conspired to protect pedophile priests is Catholicism just an accepted global pedophile ring masquerading as a Christian religion with so much evidence of its abuse of children over centuries and seemingly unwillingness of suspected racists to solve the problem now that is an excellent question I mean at certain at a certain point when it gets so widespread and it's gone on for so long and you knew about this and lied about it fondling father Freeman and even at some point like man so how why are we continuing to go to the Catholic Church? Hmm. White culture? Let's see. <clears throat> Much obliged, our victim. Shall we count anybody else in? Mm-mm-mm-mm. Oh, okay. This is not the uh got confused, not the Book club. All right, and get to my notes and then double check for folks who dialed in. Let's see. Notes from the second portion of the audio. I had a lot from chapter five. Let me go back to chapter four. Let's see. Chapter four. Okay. The short tip off. Mitchell Johnson was the kind of guy that Dominique liked to fuck and kill. A well built 34 year old black man. Of course, Dominique didn't know his name. That didn't matter. Father of four. Excuse me, didn't say father for uh, <clears throat> Mitchell Johnson, uh, but 34 year old. That's like a 34 year old, and that's what I was talking about—the age range. So we got 16 year old, 34 year old, 20 year olds. Like it just seems like it's black males. It doesn't really, you know, whatever. Black male, okay. Just like raping and having sex with and killing black males exactly what Neely Fuller Jr. said is the epitome of white supremacy racism uh, let's see <clears throat> witnesses gave Ta- Thornton excuse me, Thornton a rough description of a white male mid-30s receding hairline puffy cheeks a police sketch artist produced a picture of the suspect was this the killer? the guy didn't look very dangerous except maybe in the eyes they seemed to be to just stare out at you without registering any emotion second book in a row where we are talking about a white serial killer who's killed who knows how many black people 
He didn't look dangerous. Wow, this this guy, he just looks so meek and mild and harmless. What, is that a synonym for white? That's what fair means? Come on. Come, and then Negra is the exact, oh my God, he's going to rape and kill us right now. But that's Dr. King. He's going to rape and kill us right now. Oh my God. And say, uh, let's see. In November 99, the New Orleans Times Picayune, the city's only big newspaper, published a sketch of the suspect reporting that police were describing him as a serial killer targeting men in the area. I'm going to have to get that uh, report. <clears throat> they do not have the Times Picayune in the UW library, unfortunately, not the physical uh, copies. But I'm going to see if I can get that 99 uh, article as well. That shit, same thing. We talked about this at the very beginning of the last book. Joey 22 when he goes out September 1980 after those first four killings at the end of September it should have been immediate hey black males being targeted we already got the Atlanta child murder so called happening uh, be alert four black deaths suspicious be alert you see anything suspicious white guys suspicious anything let us know but be alert they didn't do that same thing here shouldn't the, the alert should not have been gay males if you're a gay white man, you don't have anything to fear. Keep chilling. Keep the whip in your hand. Go to the raw. If you are a black male, you don't even have to be gay. You don't have to be gay. That I mean, it's not even accurate. Just a black male. Be on alert. Don't be, you know, taking rides and hitchhiking, thumbing the ride. Nah, 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 nah. Be alert. That's what it should have said. That's not what they did. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> They got the mention of Deepwater Horizon. I feel like a dun 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 for uh, foreshadowing, as they say. Uh, next among them, wait a minute. A deputy is a street cop working for the county, not the town of the city. As a sheriff, sheriff's deputy riding in a squad car, Bergeron quietly observed the type of crimes detectives are asked to investigate. Among them was sexual abuse. When she investigated as a member of the sheriff's homicide and juvenile division, the parish had a huge sex abuse rate with a significant number of cases of parents sexually abusing their children. Now, pause right there. Remember what I just said about New Orleans? Specifically, for centuries, this is not some, whoa, what? Raping children? What? Cajun culture? Centuries. So, if that Cajun culture, now how much of that really can it be? What? You're gay? Ugh, get on out of here, faggot. Ugh, get on out. How much of that can it be? Oh, well, I'm sleeping with my daughter. And my son, actually. And I slept with my father. He slept with his grandfather. Doing that for sentence. <laughs> Cajun way how much of that really can be going on about you know mistreating anybody or calling them names about anything sexually let me just continue it says next paragraph her education and demeanor placed her way above her average promoted to detective Bergeron spent a lot of time in the interview room taking statements from parents who would claim they had sex with their child in the same way their parents had sex with them parish detectives spoke privately about how some juvenile abuse came about as a result of Cajun culture they said that some Cajuns accepted parents having sex with their children as the natural order of things now that's another one I would like to know now is this white people is this everybody break it down for me I would like to know this sounds like white culture to me I'm not saying it never happens with non-white people lots of sexual abuse and Lots of white people have done a lot of raping. So you got lots of black people, non-white people who are sexual abuse 
victims who have never gotten any sort of treatment, therapy, anything. Lots of that, even in the Catholic Church, Boy Scouts, all of that. But I wish more detail right there, too. Let's see. We got another one of those. This was in New York City where men could walk around arm in arm and not rate a second look. This was Homa, Louisiana, where small, long lakes called bayous leak out into the Gulf of Mexico. Dominic sought attention from a world that ridiculed him at worst for being gay and at best for being homely. Again, all of this sympathy. And I'm saying, hey, you have to give me some evidence. I think New Orleans specifically has a long history of all. Look at the freaking parade, man. If you've been down in Mardi Gras, it's not just them throwing their tops up and everything. The gay element has been there for a long time. They want to talk about looking back through jet archives for people in drag. Look back through the New Orleans Mardi Gras archives for the last 50 years and see how prevalent is the gay element. Does it stick out? Is it flagrant? Set Gus T. straight if I'm talking crazy. In error. Terrebonne Parish has a high rate of illiteracy. Many do not read newspapers or watch television. They know nothing about the shoeless serial killer and his eight murders in the northern parishes. That would be another one. We have people who have called into this program or just go out, you know, wherever victims and like boast, brag about not checking the news because it's full of lies. So I never check the newspaper and you shouldn't either. You know, I just go through so-called independent sources or whatever it is. Wow. I just think that that is so poisonous and ridiculous and illogical uh, it, I absolutely despise that illogical way of thinking and it's the type of thing I'm ready to mute somebody immediately and never want to hear anything they have to say again at minimum check what's happening locally the weather is mentioned there I mean sometimes they do have accurate information about the weather Weather. all kinds of things could be there that you could check oh wow serial killer kind of be aware of that whoa Check the news. Be aware. Uh, oh, yeah. And the, the, the bashing of the victims, how much crack cocaine they got stuffed in their pockets after they've been raped and killed and disposed of. Uh, let's see. This was another one where these books are written by and for whites. You get all the gory detail. What happened with all of these black males who've been killed? beating up Michael Vincent what happened they say the pathologist used her scalpel to open the body and saw to take off the skull cap in the usual autopsy fashion oh yes give me all the details delectable negro give me all the gore how you chopped up the negro's body and all of the Y incisions you opened up his chest and looked at his innards and got to figure out how he was strangled how much semen was in his amos and oh yes mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm written by and for racists that's who would love material like this that in my opinion that's why this is such a huge uh, genre in racism white supremacy I think if we were in a system of justice I cannot imagine there being a serial killer genre much less a celebration a glorification of serial killers where Jeffrey Dahmer gets, you know, uh, what do they call it? Graphic novels, you know, and things also sympathize. Oh, poor Jeff. He didn't have any homies growing up in Wisconsin. So he had to kill and rape and eat niggers. Let's see. 
the sex with Vincent had been good. Oh, this is another one with the, all the referring to people. Oh, we did the last name. My fault. My fault. I thought this was Vincent. He has two first names. Uh, the sex with Vincent had been good, but Dominic really got his sexual high from killing. It was something indescribable, even to himself, let alone to anyone else. All you knew was that he had to do it. Same thing, sort of languaging that we heard from Joseph G. Christopher about just having to do it, compelled to do it. This is my mission. And <clears throat> I think it was the same motivation. Christopher wasn't raping them, but black males, same type of build, even to, to some degree. Age range, very wide, didn't have to be focused on younger, older, whatever. Black males, but that... I get a rush. I get a sexual enjoyment from this derived sexual from someone, both of them who felt emasculated. I'm called a fag and I'm not a man and I dropped out of high school. So I don't get to demonstrate my power as a white man. This is one way that I can compensate and demonstrate that and show you my white manhood killing black males, <clears throat> young, virile, muscular black males. I can rape and kill them even carve out their hearts and what have you that's how and then even get away with it brag about it dump the bodies out in public and get away with it do it out in public stump the police make them look like idiots that's how i prove my masculinity my white manhood uh let's see now all this bragging about how uh dominic had made this enemy with detective thornton and ooh, the cops are gonna get you and they're smart and college educated for two years wait a minute she says he says for 12 months 18 months 24 months for two years the serial killer was suddenly inactive Thornton and the rest of the cops investigating the killings were at a dead end that's what I mean about all that propaganda lies J. Edgar Hoover and CSI and everything and man we get it together and get that get out of here nothing white high school dropout got y'all stumped you got a whole FBI task force and stumped you got nothing all these you don't have nothing sitting around twiddling your thumbs hope you kill somebody else what are you gonna do what are you gonna do eh it's negros who cares what is it I gave the sound clip from Pulp Fiction let me tell you I posted it yesterday I didn't even think cause I hadn't seen Pulp Fiction in so long that movie is what uh, almost 30 years old. That movie is right in line with these killings. Late 90s, that movie came out in 94. That movie, graphic scene, black male being anally raped. Is followed by black male Marvin having his brains blown out all over the back of a vehicle, right? Remember that scene? The great Samuel L. Jackson, John Travolta. What do they do after they blow out his brains? They got to dump the body at Monster Joe's junkyard. They toss Marvin, his brains blown out. They toss him in the trunk. And the wolf, white man who comes in to clean all this up so that they get away with it clean. He says, the guy, uh, the guy from the tr junkyard monster joe says hey who is this guy what's going on he says hey hey, hey. nobody who will be missed that's the black male in fact we talked about that with dr martin kevorkian he's wow what a line everybody has family right doesn't mr lebanks doesn't he have fans family michael vincent doesn't he have family 
somebody cared about them like man that's my child that's my brother that's my father somebody missed them <laughs> nobody who will be missed talking about the black male let's see said Thornton and the rest of them but they were stumped they don't know what's going on nobody who will be missed they'll forget about it it was the cat and mouse game that some serial killers like to play make a game out of killing black males didn't Joey he said it was baseball 17 hits 13 runs make a game out of it make a game out of killing we heard that in race war world war 2 make a game out of killing Japs that's what they call them See how many gold teeth I can collect. You got to be alive when you take the teeth out. Got to be alive. Get some more torture in there. Take that, Jap. Tojo. Hmm. Make a game. Heard that American sniper. Make a game out of killing non-white people. Chapter 5. He was in the Glee Club. All this, again, I'm calling lie on all of this. I'm sure. He heard, oh, you fag, oh, you know, you P-word, oh, you're not a man, blah, 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 you fat, blah, blah, I'm sure, fat shame, all of blah, blah, I'm saying categorically, I do not think it was some life of turmoil and I can't get a job and every step I take, oh, you fag, get out of here. I'm sleeping with my dad, he just told us that that's Cajun culture, get out of here. All the raping Catholic trip, man. Fondling Father Freeman. Let's see how many parallels we get with the book that we just read. This guy lies a lot too. Ronald Dominic. I think he could be lying about the priest raping him uh, and just to justify his racist raping anti-sexual behavior and lust. Uh, oh my God. The amount of running. You cannot sit here and tell me about competent police. This guy to have this much contact with police just like Jeffrey Dahmer. I just went back and reread that today. Mr. Fuller, I played the audio. We said that young victim, also a teen, love raping black and non-white children, boys. Young teen, I think he was like 14, 15, and the officer escorted him back to Jeffrey Dahmer's residence where he was raped, killed, and presumably eaten. Because I get Jeffrey Dahmer didn't look dangerous either. Nice white man. Let's see. But all these running, Jeffrey Dahmer, I forgot too, Jeffrey Dahmer had been arrested. They didn't even check up with him when he got out on parole. What does it mean to be white? It's not just, I'm white and I can go out and kill niggers and nobody cares, nobody who'll be missed, but I'm white. Even if I do have police contact, well, they go and shoot down a whole neighborhood, Breonna Taylor, because we got a warrant on one person, one nigra. You keep getting in trouble. I go out in public. I'm smacking females upside the head. Hey, watch your baby. Smacking, getting in trouble for brutalizing folks left and right. They said he was calling, making obscene phone calls. That's because he was raped by the priest. That's because they called him a faggot. Now I got to call and make obscene phone calls. They're like, come on, come on, come on. This guy should have been under the jail a long time. All of this is sociopathic behavior. You can't even behave yourself, man. And then repetitive, you keep doing things and keep doing that. No, 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 no. We're not giving you a program. You keep doing things. And these are not small crimes. 
you raped somebody now that one important because I've heard that before gotta have a victim God, that's why I never run from it. You should think of that. Anytime white people, even other non-white people, victims of racism, when they but I don't you stop saying that you're a victim. You are a survivor of racism. You can't even have a prosecution if you don't have a victim. They will toss the case. You just heard that's one thing you can say you got. Listen to this goofy book. Hey, if you don't have a victim, we don't have a crime. To prosecute, there has to be a victim white people racist they know that that's why they push us you're not a victim what are you talking about they steady raping and killing us you're not a victim what are you talking about all these run-ins with police and for the types of things that he was doing and again I think he lied I don't think he was raped in prison I don't believe this at all and not just I was raped oh I was so savagely raped they almost ripped my anus in half oh my god that no count black man get out of here I think that is a total lie I just want to justify and get more sympathy for why I got to go out and be a racist savage child rapist even Uh, man him working for Domino's I can't say it enough moron Gus been saying for over a decade man minimize eating out I've been focused on just the who's preparing your food. I was saying that <clears throat> way before they had all the ride share and DoorDash and uh, Uber Eats and all of that. That is not just encompassing the individuals who are preparing your carry out. That's also now the people that are going to be bringing it to you. Whoa, is it going to be Ronald Dominic for DoorDash? Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm cooking everything myself. I'm good. <laughs> let's see oh my god let's see if I can get in if you'll get in my last few notes so we can get ready to wrap the use of the term hustlers I totally think is is an act of white supremacy these are just tons of victims uh, who have no resources and are just doing whatever they can to get by I think it's totally pejorative Uh, the act of racism Uh, it required a delicate tongue and maybe some visual stimulation flashing money serial killers like Dominic rely on guile more than forced to ensnare their victims they are con men but while the hustler thought it was a simple business deal Dominic was setting him up for something else entirely again who is more informed about what it means to be white about racism white supremacy and Dominic slick with it. He's a high school dropout and he's slick with words. Let's see. His brother had the Dixie Shipyard. Second mention this program. Uh, let's see. Mr. Fuller say white people go to the bottom of the ocean and study everything. They said, but there was a problem of body disposal. Pathologists have made a study of how bodies fare in the bayou. They've learned that warm bayou waters accelerate decomposition, making subsequent identification difficult. The longer a body remains in the bayou, the harder it is to identify. White people study everything. I'm sure there could have been some non-white people involved in this study, but I mean, hey, white people study everything. I'm sure they did not go to the Negro lab, Negro scientists to get this information. I could be wrong. Uh, 
he joins the Lions Club. The same thing we heard about Joey, right? He made snowmen and helped all the old ladies and fixed their car for almost free or charged them a nickel and went and got groceries for him. He was just the greatest, most wonderful white boy in the history of the world. Isn't that what we heard about Joey? Let's see what I just say. Making a game out of killing black of killing period out of killing period, especially non-white people say they wouldn't have made the Thornton Thornton feel any better to know that the man he was hunting had already killed 10 men, tying him with Kansas's now notorious BTK serial killer who was responsible for killing at 10 and was still at large at the time. Tying. This is not a game <laughs> like what even that language. You could just say he's killed the same number. I implied this is a sport. We're competing. I'm, oh, he got 12. Oh, he jumped back in front. He's taking the lead. Like, we are not watching the Golden State Warriors. No, this is the system of white supremacy. This is white culture. Uh, let's see. Last one. At the very moment, Dominic was restless. He knew and longed for the feeling of tying up a guy with his rope. Now, even just stop right there. That is white culture I guess I needed to hear that one again that right there what I say worthless negro from Virginia where is that from the lynching in Coatesville Virginia excuse me Coatesville Pennsylvania of Zachariah Walker they lynched him <clears throat> took his penis <clears throat> same thing with Dominic took his penis took his fingers gloated about it and then wrote in the newspaper what they say well, maybe we shouldn't have lynched him, but we can all agree Zachariah Walker was a worthless Negro from Virginia. Getting a rope to dispose of Negros. That is white culture. That's in the purge. We talked about that very first one. Black male gets in the house. They capture him. What do he say? Ethan Hawke's character get a rope Dr. Kevorkian I give another second time this program he said that when we talked to him about that program the year doc, or excuse me that Donald Trump was elected 2016 he said that moment bing that is white culture that has residents I mean we know what to do we've got a nigra get a rope yes I got my knife ready I want the penis I want his left knuckle I got my jar We are going to get to that. Oh, my God. One way or another. Pause right there. We are going to get to that in this book, too. I got my jar because I got to keep trophies. Either he's going to get it. I'm going to have to pull it from a different source. But one way we will come back to that. The finish of that paragraph is rope. Then forcefully pushing his cock into the guy's ass. His cock pulsating his strong hands tightening around the guy's neck as he struggled sometimes he used a belt or a rope instead this to me reads like pornography in many many ways the description of officer Bergeron at the beginning buxom chest and all of that and then all these rapes and everything else written by and for whites this is a part of the appeal in my view of the serial 
killer genre. Ooh, I get to hear about how they carved him up in the body and where it was found and how it decomposed and the autopsy and oh, they're going to bust open the skull and the scalpel so they can go in the chest and see what they did and oh, he loved to rape them and he would stick his cock in there and just wreck them and oh, he left all the scene. Come I said, I didn't even want to read this. Who wants to read all of this? And this went on for eight years? Probably longer than that. Who wants to read it? Answer my own question. Who wants to read this? Usual suspects. Patty told you, if only you knew what it means to be white. We will continue next Thursday back tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism. If anything, sobriety would be best. Ricky Wallace says he wasn't thinking. We should always be thinking. Most importantly about our safety. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no throwaway children never ever consume alcohol narcotics with individuals classified as white cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim right. i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs>